Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and joining me via Skype is Heather. Hi. And Adam. It's your kids, Farron. They've decided to start selling meth. Well, that's because I taught them. (laughs) Also, I don't have kids, so what alternate future are you coming from? Listen, listen. Sometimes you just don't want to know the answer to the question. This is true. (laughs) Okay, so tonight, as part of a two-parter, we're doing Back to the Future Part 1. And then we'll do Part 2 and 3 in in an episode, I don't know, in a few weeks, whenever. So yeah, we're starting with Back to the Future 1. And it premiered on the 3rd of July, 1985. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who also did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, and one of my favorite movies, Contact, which is an adaptation of the Carl Sagan novel. It was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. They did all three. And it's starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Thomas F. Wilson. Uh, he plays Biff. Crispin Glover, who plays the dad. And of course, he doesn't return for two and three. Claudia Wells, who plays the girlfriend, she doesn't return for two and three. And James Tolkien, who's the uh, uh, the bald-headed guy, the teacher. Uh, oh, yeah. Who, of course, we've seen before. I got to do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I got to give you your dream shot. I'm going to send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. This was made on a budget of 19 million bucks, so a little more than our standard 15. And it made... million. So it did well. It did very, very well. And the funny thing is for part two and three, they only upped the budget for each of those films by $1 million. Like each time or 1 million total? Each. Okay. Well, they were filmed together for a budget of 40. So two movies, 20 million each. Yeah, as opposed to 19, but 19 million for 388. Yeah, this was, this was a pretty big hit and you know, go figure. It was, uh, Michael J. Fox was sort of at the height of his popularity. He was filming uh, the sitcom Family Ties. In fact, that's why it took so long to film this movie, because he would only film in the afternoons and evenings, because in the mornings he was busy filming Family Ties. So that must have been a hell of a schedule. Yeah. Of course, Michael J. Fox, you guys know, right? He wasn't the original Marty McFly. I had no idea. Seriously? Who was was originally slated to play that role? Eric Stoltz. They filmed for six weeks with Eric Stoltz, a redheaded oh. kid. You may remember him. They dyed his hair black for the movie. Yeah, they filmed like six weeks with him. They had the film almost done, and they fired him. What happened? What? Well, he's a great actor, um, but there's two problems. The first is he's a method actor. And so method, the method, capital M, the method means you create this huge backstory for your character, and then you live that character. Mm-hmm. Which led to problem number two is that he's a great dramatic actor, but in his head, Marty McFly could not get over the despair of having destroyed his own future. And so, like everyone says, he gave a great dramatic performance, but that's not what they wanted. Right. So they fired him. Wow. And it became like quite the clusterfuck. Like initially, the woman who, who played uh, Marty's girlfriend, they hired her and then. They had to change the scheduling. And so she got fired and they brought in someone else and then she got fired and they wound up back with the original. It was a real disaster, (laughs) but yeah, they, Oh yeah, absolutely. Like they filmed the entire thing pretty much twice. And if you go onto YouTube, you can see a lot of pictures of, and even some film of the original scenes of it. I think it'd be interesting to see it, to see the Eric Stoltz cut. If they ever went ahead and put it together though, of course that would be, prohibitively expensive but yeah 
they filmed the entire movie with him and then uh, fired him. So, <laughs> whoa, man, that's yeah. I'm. I wonder how much different. I mean, I suppose like it would have been half the price almost in order uh, to make the thing. It did cost a lot more. Remember, a lot of the cost went into the the town square, which they built from mm-hmm. scratch. Okay. Uh, like all of that. I mean, it's only the square. Like there are no side streets. There's just right. the square. But they built that from scratch. That was, I assure you, not cheap. But right. everything else was filmed on location. Like okay. the, yeah, like the the stage where they have the dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a community center. The high school is an actual high school. It's actually Richard Nixon's high school. The everything, the only things that were sets were the were the house and the garage, uh, like in, you know inside. Obviously the insides, but uh, all the outside sets they was just practical. In fact, the street where Marty McFly is hit by the car, yep, uh, that's the same street they filmed large port large portions of Teen Wolf on. Oh, and they were filming. Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz while Teen Wolf was being filmed and uh, Michael J. Fox came over to visit and said, man, one of these days I'd love to make a movie that's done by Spielberg because he's the producer. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, lo and behold, like six months later, they called him up and said, hey, Michael, (laughs) got a job for you. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cool. I listened uh, last week. I listened to the director's commentary, which has Bob Gale and... um, and whoever, so one of the other guys, Robert Zemeckis himself wouldn't do a scene by scene commentary, but the others did. And they spent a lot of talk, a lot of time talking about locations and, you know, Eric Stoltz. And if you go onto YouTube, there's all sorts of interviews where they talk about the problems they had with him because of his method acting. Like the scene where the the almost fight in the high school cafeteria where Marty keeps pushing on Biff. Apparently he really got into it. And at one point, Thomas Wilson said, look, dude, you're going to break my collarbone. <laughs> yeah. I guess Eric took it a little far. He insisted everyone call him Marty on the set, <laughs> except for except for Leah Thompson, who he was making out with behind the camera, because I guess they had a thing going. Attaboy. Uh, so yeah, yeah, like Thomas Wilson said, he was method until he wasn't. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those what ifs, like what if things had been different? It's sort of like when you look at the original, original pilot of Star Trek, The mm-hmm. Cage, with you know Jeffrey Hunter as Christopher Pike. How different would that show have been with that cast? Right. Or uh, Voyager had a different captain for the first two weeks. Genevieve something or other, uh, an actress from Quebec, and she couldn't handle the the pace of TV, so she quit. You know, it's one of those what ifs, I guess. I mean, Kate Mulgrew is like iconic in that role, so I'm kind of kind of happy about that. I'll be honest. I never liked her. I I don't like her as an actress and I never liked the character, but that's just me. Really? Uh, It probably makes me a monster, I guess. I just never liked the show. No, uh, <laughs> I mean, the show's not great. The Voyager is probably the least favorite uh, Star Trek se- series of mine, but yeah. I enjoy Kate Mulgrew as an actress and voice actress. Yeah, I don't know. I find she's always Kate Mulgrew, but I mean, yeah, I'm in the minority. I know this. So, so back to what we're actually talking about, which is back to the future. <laughs> so I originally saw this. I know I didn't see it in theaters, but I, you know, I, I saw it many, many times. This came out in 85, July of 85. So I, that would have been uh, between grade four and grade five for me. And this was like a super popular film. Like everyone saw this. This was the film to see. It was the cool film. And I remember at the time I really liked it. I wasn't blown away. I didn't think it was like the most amazing thing ever, but I definitely enjoyed it. And I find my, you know, I've seen it many times over the years. I don't, I don't like it even a little bit more than when I watched it 30 years ago or whatever. 
but I don't like it any less. So what about you, Adam? When's the first time you saw this? Uh, I saw this movie. Actually, this is one that I have seen before. I, I remember seeing this probably around eh, 14, 15 years old. Okay. It was fun. It was a bit, um, it got a little bit heady for me at times. And there was points where I'm, I kind of wasn't, uh, no, I shouldn't say heady. It's just like, okay, time travel, so X, so Y, so Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I probably spaced on that a little bit as a kid, but mm. it was it was fun enough. Yeah. Heather, how about you? Um, it was a rental. Like you said, it was it was one that you basically had to see if you wanted to talk to anyone <laughs> ever Yeah. at the time. So I saw it once as a kid when it came to the video stores and... Mm. I remember liking it and I knew all the lines that everybody was quoting and I got all the jokes and I carried on and, and then I watched it for this and I'm like, huh? So is it just, did you find it problematic or you just wasn't that impressive or found it formulaic? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like was it, was it, was it then too? Or have I just become old and bitter? Um, or both. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, it's, you know, there's only so much you can do with the plot. I don't think time travel, like time travel, you know, what would you call them? Paradoxes. I don't think they'd ever really been dealt with all that much. I mean, I can't think of a movie. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but the only other time travel movies I can think of are, you know, people going to the past and meeting people and then coming back and that sort of it. Mm-hmm. I can think of a seventies movie called time after time, which is excellent about HG Wells using his time machine to chase Jack the Ripper into the future, uh, which sounds really stupid, but is actually an excellent movie uh, with uh, David Warner and uh, the guy from clockwork orange, Malcolm McDowell. I can't think of another film that had done this, but it's been done so many times since the paradox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's based on an actual, I won't say a scientific theory, but a, I guess you call it a scientific philosophy theory, the grandfather paradox. What happens if I go back and kill my own father mm-hmm. yeah. and how, how am I born to go back in time? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I liked is they, they keep it pretty simple. Like, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. The idea of the the bodies fading out in the photograph and stuff like that. But I thought they keep it pretty simple. And even when they, when they, when they complicated it with a number two, with the divergent timelines, like they literally draw it out on a, on a, on a chalkboard for you. Yeah. Awesome. Like, so I had no problem with that. mm -hmm. My problem was, and now we confront the bully. Now we set this up and now we, you know, Check, check. I like. I still like the skateboarding, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I still like the car, and um, mm-hmm. I still like Doc Brown, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's it. It's a teen movie that happens to include time travel. Mm. Had this yeah. movie gone differently, had it really just been about some guy trying to, you know, succeed at being in the band and flirting with one girl or flirting with another, like it, it could the movie could have gone in a different direction had it not been conceived obviously out of the gate as a time travel movie, but there's another movie in there, but I think maybe that's why it was successful, that it's something teenagers in the eighties would have been familiar with. Mm. It is formulaic confront the bully, kiss the girl, win the day, do something cool. So what stands out for you, Heather? Like, I mean, obviously the film, I'm not sure irks you, but bores you. Is there anything particular that sort of stands out for you either positively or negatively? Um, I remember why I'm a fan of Michael J. Fox now. 
Like I've always been kind of a fan. I'm like, oh, I like that guy. I wonder why. It's like, oh, that's why. Yeah. Okay. Um, he just can act his ass off. Oh yeah. Uh, no, I just like him. I thought the skateboarding tricks were cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh. uh. Okay. <laughs> the flex Adam. capacitor's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Adam, what about you? Anything particular stand out? Um. They're like in the first half of the film. Well, no, in the first act of the film, like Doc Brown and Marty are kind of like the only people that. Oh, no, that's not true. Doc Brown's an asshole. Pretty much everybody's an asshole. Really? Um, Yeah, like the parents are asshole. Like Marty's parents are jerks. Um, Whether or not you want to look at it from the fact of like, oh, they're just kind of trying to be repressive or it's the fact that his mother seems to be a closet alcoholic and is consistently lying to her children. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The father is just kind of this weenie and he has to be told by his children, hey, grow a bit of a spine he goes yeah yeah i know you've told me this he he doesn't pay attention to anything um a biff is obviously a quintessential asshole uh marty i mean he's like a very typical teenage dude he's no more of an asshole than any other 17 year old his girlfriend i mean she's not like we don't really see her we've got what like three scenes with her in the entire film i mean there's like in the beginning there's no real great character to latch on to besides Marty and, and actually kind of hope for I mean, Doc Brown's a he, I mean he's vergering up on a terrorist like he he made a bomb for terrorists <laughs> no, he made he a bomb all, for them. no it's, he, it's he a made fake bomb but yeah it's a fake bomb yeah it's a fake bomb but he made it for them <laughs> he did yeah he did steal plutonium yeah and then he uh, stole plutonium um <laughs> and like at the end of the movie you're supposed to have this sort of redemption arc for at least Marty's family and they still just kind of come off as assholes <laughs> It's funny because I think they're all, I mean, with the exception of Biff, I think they're all pretty likable people. Like, you know, really? Yeah. Like, like George, the father, he's just this antisocial dweeb, but there's nothing offensive about him. And Lorraine is, I mean, she's, I hated Lorraine. I don't know. She's just, you know, she's this girl who clearly had ambitions and then married a loser and, sort of spiraled into alcoholism mm-hmm. and it's mostly that they're just totally uncool and even I, biff as the adult we see to begin with as the manager yeah. he's he's a prick but he's yeah. still a loser like he's like look at the way they dress him mm-hmm. oh yeah no and, he is he's a stereotypical washed up 40 year old yeah um i mean george looks like he hit about 1965 and then stopped yeah the way he dresses, everything about him. He's, you know, he's, they're caricatures. No one here is interesting. Doc Brown, I love. I think he's cool. He's just, he's a mad scientist who is a nice guy. You know, he's obviously taken Marty under his wing. Hmm. He never asks Marty to do anything truly dangerous. He just wants him to show up and record him. Right. Um, Other than the Libyans. Well, yeah, but he didn't expect the Libyans to find him, right? Oh, no. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And even in the second and third films, all Doc Brown ever wants to do is make it right for Marty. Sure. He goes into the future and he comes back at the very end. Why? To help Marty because of his mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. And I mean, Doc Brown's intentions are good, but, you know, Mm -hmm. the road to hell and all that. Yeah. Well, he's a lunatic. Yeah. You know, that's what makes him so charming. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. He's a very charming character. He's he's a charming, charismatic, 
asshole. <laughs> like, I just don't, you, I don't think they're assholes, but you know, teach like, their own. Pluck, pluck Doc Brown out of the context of this and put him into today. He's a guy who had his entire estate burned down, decided to spend what little remaining money that he had exclusively on trying to uh, create time travel. He stole a internationally restricted substance. He created what terrorists thought was a bomb, and then he drags a kid off and puts him in massive jeopardy. He's a mad scientist, dude. That's yeah, what he and is. he's an asshole for it. I don't think he's an asshole. You can, you I, can I still like an asshole. You can. <laughs> what got me, just to sort of move things along, what weirds me out is the way Marty McFly moves. The way he runs with his hands out, and he's always sort of stumbling. And like the Pratt Falls, that was something that they even talked about in the uh, in the director's commentary. Like when he wipes out when he's trying to put his pants on. Right. Uh, he could he did that take after take after take. He had that skill. And by the way, that is a skill. Mm-hmm. But the way he's always running, it's almost like he doesn't have control of his own limbs. <laughs> the way he pushes his skateboard drives me crazy. Once he gets going, he owns it. But those first couple of kicks, they're yeah. so awkward. It um, seems very much to me like like almost stage acting coming to coming to TV where everything's a little bit more exaggerated for the yeah. benefit of the audience. But, I mean, we'll see it when we get to the part where he chases George just before he realizes he's a peeping Tom. And just right. the way he runs with his arms out, and it's always like he's about to stumble. It's very, very weird. And mm-hmm. at first I thought, well, maybe that's like early onset of – Michael J. Fox is what is it, Parkinson's? Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just he made a weird choice, and he comes across not as awkward but as unnatural, just the way he runs. Okay. Like, who runs like that? Like he always looks like he's just been pushed out of the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. And I, and I just, it really, really bothered me. I don't know. It's, it's like, he always had this wicked, you know, like a diaper rash, <laughs> just yeah. the way, just the way he ran. It was, it was very, very weird. So let's jump in and see what we see and sort of go from there. All so right. it starts off with a whole bunch of clocks. There's a bit of the scene where one of the, one of the clocks they show, it's actually a picture of a clock with Buster Keaton, hanging off the clock and it's just from an old classic movie where he actually did that but of course that's a great tip of the hat to the fact that that's exactly what will happen to doc brown later in the film mm-hmm. Ooh, foreshadowing Ooh, yeah mm-hmm. and, and and it's a and it's a you know a tip of the hat to a classic silent film right uh, and then you know we see that sorry what i was just gonna say that we kind of pan over and we get like some backstory and in, in um in the form of news clippings. Yeah. In other news, officials at the Pacific Nuclear Research Facility have denied the rumor that a case of missing plutonium was in fact stolen from their vault two weeks ago. A Libyan terrorist group had claimed responsibility for the election. And uh, yeah, we see that he's got this crazy Rube Goldberg device to, you know, to feed the dog. And very much that's about, you know, communicating to the audience that, Doc Brown is a lunatic. He's a mad scientist because look at this bullshit machine he has. Yeah, I was just going to say, well, he's got he's got a coffee machine that starts up with yeah. no coffee in it or no coffee pot under it, which turns mm-hmm. on the TV, which, oh, I don't even remember. It, it bumps something and this yeah. swings arm and, and eventually it swings over the can into the automated dog food can opener. But none of yeah. it's like none of it's been reset ever. Like it's all... S- still going but there's no human there to put mm-hmm. the coffee pot back yeah right like it's just it's a sign that there's something going on yeah right. exactly and it's you know it, it does a pretty good job of communicating right off the bat something's yeah like we automatically know what kind of guy doc brown is 
just by seeing this and we get a heads up on the story. And it's, it's actually a pretty well done little scene. Yeah. And then this is how we know it's the 80s, because when Marty enters the, the house, we see that he's got the key under the doormat. For our listeners in 2020, don't do that. <laughs> that is oh. no longer a good plan. Was it ever, though? <laughs> like, was there a point in time where nobody knew about the key under the doormat trick? I don't think it's a matter of that. It's that it didn't matter. Mm. You know, yeah. my mother, who tomorrow is 74, grew up in the, you know, she's born in 46. The world she grew up in, you didn't lock your door. Mm-hmm. Even in the 1980s, I lived in Deer Run, which is a, back then was a you know middle class, new neighborhood. You didn't lock your door, as long as someone was home, obviously. But the door was never locked. Kids were in and out, and maybe they're down the street or six blocks away, but you probably didn't leave the key under your mat. <laughs> our, our back door was never locked. Well, yeah, because who's going to hop into your backyard and break in? That was... Yeah, like we had a we had a dog and there were people all over and we had neighbors and like we didn't need a key under the mat. Yeah, exactly. So Marty walks in and it's hard to tell what kind of house it is. And I'll be perfectly honest, until I watched it last week, I just thought he had some warehouse downtown. It did not occur to me that he was living in the garage from his old estate. I never made that connection in oh. 30 years. Oh. Interesting. Wow. I, I, <laughs> I just thought it was the place burned down and he lived somewhere else. It had never occurred to me that he had moved into his own garage. Hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't really considered that, I suppose. I just assumed that everything on his estate was sold off. Yeah. Because but that's, it even says in the beginning that everything was sold out. Well, the land was. Yeah. So obviously what he's kept is the garage. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that when he leaves, it's the garage. But that was the first time I ever noticed that. And yeah, so anyway, Marty comes into this garage and we don't really see him. Like we see him from behind and he's got this, I don't know who builds that, but it's this insane amplifier. speaker. A- amplifier, is that what that is? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's got, why is he in front of it? Well, I mean like, yeah, he, he rolls in, he, he puts his bag on a skateboard and kicks it away and that rolls under the bed and we see the plutonium case under there too. Yeah. And then he just, you see him put a key into this thing and turn it on and just flipping all the switches and turning everything up to 11. And yeah. and we get to the point where he's standing in front of this thing that's got to be at least, what, like seven foot, eight foot tall? Yeah. <laughs> and, come on. Yeah, at least don't stand in front of it. <laughs> I know. I, I just look at that and my first question is, why did Doc Brown build that? Like, I wonder if it's a project that Marty built and, you know, this is... You know, Doc Brown was helping him do it or mentoring him or something like that. I don't, because, go ahead. I don't think so because he even makes a point when Doc Brown is on the phone with me. He goes, "Oh, hey, by the way, don't use the, don't use the amp. There's something wrong with it." So yeah. to me, it seems like <laughs> it something that that the doctor yeah. was building for Marty. Yeah, that's also possible too, because there's no inclination that Doc Brown has any musical. Yeah, there's no hinting. Any musical inclination at all. So he turns it on, and you will be shocked to discover he is thrown back across the garage, and he is not bleeding from the ears. uh, (laughs) Somehow. Or disoriented, or vomiting, all of which is probably what would have happened if something that big blew up in your face. Yeah, (laughs) blow out your eardrums. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is a movie, so he doesn't do it. And then the phone rings. And it's kind of funny, a couple things. First off, that uh, Marty is answering Doc Brown's phone and that Doc Brown 
knows Marty will be there because he hasn't been there all week. Otherwise, you assume Marty would have cleaned up the dog food. Uh, <laughs> well, you'd, you know. you'd certainly hope so, at least. Well, that and those those clocks have been five minutes or 15, 15 minutes late for a week. So clearly Marty hasn't been there. So it's awfully it's awfully convenient that uh, Doc Brown called at just the right time. And uh, or maybe I don't know, maybe he called uh, Marty's house and he wasn't there. So he thought, where else would he be? I'll try my house. Let's, but it's it's at least three days because this is his f- fourth tardy in a row. Mm-hmm. That's so right. the, the last three probably didn't make it right. Yeah, but I think it's just because he's a slacker. Well, just yeah, but he yeah. wouldn't have had time to get to Doc Brown's before school if he's yeah. already late, right? Yeah, fair enough. Are you telling me that it's 825? Precisely. Damn. I'm late for school. It's okay, that's cute. It's, you know, the humor in this film is not knee-slapping, yuck-yuck humor. It's just, it's funny. It puts a smile on your face, and I like that kind of humor. Mm-hmm. I hate in-your-face humor. It's probably why I don't like uh, Mel Brooks, and yet I like Aeroplane, so I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's got a certain charm to it, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, off he goes. And if you'll notice, that's the garage. The facade is the garage. Okay. It turns out it's just the facade. That's it. They put it beside, they put it behind a gate beside the, uh, what do you call it? Beside the, uh, Burger King. And that's it. There's no actual garage there. Okay. Um, <laughs> it is just, it is just, a, a just, a a facade from a movie set sort of thing. Oh, but interesting. In all these years, it never once occurred to me that that was the garage. I don't know why, but it never did. Anyway, he gets we uh, we learn that Marty McFly, among other things, is not a safe skateboarder. <laughs> That's how I lost my skateboard. That's, you used uh, to do that. Uh, yeah, my mom caught me hanging onto the back of a bus. That's are you uh, serious? I didn't have a skateboard anymore. Good on mom. Yeah, <laughs> sketching's fun. It's fine. Everything's is that, fine. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what I always heard it referred to as was sketching oh. when you hang onto the back of a vehicle. Oh, okay. I always call it fucking dumb, but I guess that's, you know, potato. Yeah, well, it's because it's you're boring. Yes, I'm boring. <laughs> uh, also, I have all my limbs. <laughs> I, I believe oh, Heather does as well. Uh, as long as we don't compare scars, stitches, and breaks. <laughs> I, think you, I think you probably have more than I do, but uh, I have less internal organs than you. True. Anyway, back to the movie. <laughs> so... After hitching rides, uh, skating and hitching rides, or skitching, as I've been recently informed it's called, all the way to school with, what's the song playing in the background? It was a Power of Love by Huey Lewis, yeah. which yeah. makes no sense to me. I mean, yeah, it's a, it was a popular song at the time, but I have no idea what the hell it's doing in that movie. I really don't. Other than they were able to get Huey Lewis to do a song for them. So, okay. Well, there's, a, there's an 80s girl coming up. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, also, Huey Lewis is coming up. He's in the movie. Bet you didn't know that, did you? I feel like I, I didn't. Did. I just <laughs> so anyway, he gets to school, oh. and his girlfriend Jennifer says that Strickland, who is the the principal, I guess, is out for him, and they catch him anyway. And mm-hmm. you know, we get to learn that Marty is a slacker, just like his father. And you know, I, I gotta say, 
neither of these people comes off well. Like Strickland comes off as kind of a dickhead principal, but Marty McFly doesn't come off especially well either. The attitude he gives this guy, it's like, dude, you're late. Like, what if, you know, I mean, but, like, yeah, you're late, but also going ahead and insulting both you and your father in a very, very cutting way is not professional. Oh, like no. If a teacher, no. if a teacher had done that to me in high school, I probably would have. I, I don't think I would have handled it nearly as well as Marty McFly does. Yeah, no. But in the 80s, yeah, shit like this happened, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, that's the kicker is that that sort of, you know, bust your chops teacher who will do everything short of slap you upside the head. Those teachers, sure. those, those relics of the 50s and 60s, they were still in schools. Mm-hmm. We had one guy that winged uh, chalk stubs at you if you fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. But he's not going to kill you if he does that, right? Like, he's not. Well, no, but can you see that happening today? No, not if. I mean, sort of lobbing it gently. No, wing. Yeah, no, no, no. Apparently, there was a scene they filmed uh, where Marty is in detention after school and it just never got remade uh, or it never got finished or something like that. Uh, okay. they, or maybe it was that they filmed it with Eric Stoltz and just didn't bother when Michael J. Fox joined the cast, but whatever. So the very next scene is in the gym where he and his group, the pinheads are playing by the way, the, the, the guy you're seeing playing with Marty, the guy with the long mm-hmm. blonde hair and the glasses, that was Michael J. Fox's guitar teacher. Oh, cool. And the four people, these four you know, total squares judging the acts, the one who stands up with the megaphone and says, Yeah, that's Huey Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Ah, no. You oh, didn't man, know that? That's really? awesome. Oh, yeah. I had... <laughs> Up until now, you know, we're how many minutes into the movie? We're uh, eight minutes eight into the movie. Now. There's not a lot of character here. He's a, you know, he's a punk kid. His principal's a dick. His girlfriend is a non-entity. Doc Brown steals, you know, nuclear material. We don't know a lot. But finally, we actually get a little bit of, I guess, character, which is them walking through the town square and you know marty and jennifer talking about the you know the big weekend the camping trip where you know they're gonna have sex but they they can't actually say that because you know it is a pg film by the way you know that disney wouldn't make this film they refused oh really robert zemeckis had a lot of trouble getting this film made he didn't want to tell people that spielberg was the producer he wanted to get it made on his sort of his on his own merits but everyone kept looking at the scene where Marty makes the moves on, uh, puts the moves on Lorraine. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, that's incest. No, we can't have that. And they wouldn't allow it. And it wasn't until uh, Zemeckis started dropping Spielberg's names that Universal said, oh, okay, well, we know he's not going to make it gross. I don't think that was like pushback from, you know, the Luke Leia thing. I, I just think, you know, it just, it seems a little weird. And I think they were worried that it would be done in a way that was inelegant or a little icky. And even still, it it still feels weird and gross to watch. You know, I just find it comedic just because it it so quickly turns. But they, you know, that's much later in the film. But, you know, even this film, like the fact is they're going camping for the weekend. No one mm-hmm. thinks they're going camping to uh, to, you know, to do Bible study. Right. At least no one who's normal. No. Uh, well, I mean, also we we missed the uh, the van in the background, the reelect Goldie Wilson van. Yeah, yeah. Progress is his middle name. Yes. There's a lot of real neat hints that 
you almost don't get the first time, including, or in my case, 35 years, like the fact that he's living out of his old garage Mm -hmm. or, you know, the clock tower in the background or, uh, the jet, you know, the, uh, the jazzercise place where the, uh, where the, uh, what do you call the malt shop used to be? And Mm -hmm. the, the movie theater that does pornos and, you know, things like that. Like you don't realize why they're showing it to you. Uh, yeah, it, this is a film. This, you know, there are not a lot of films in the '80s that suggest, "Hey, you should go watch this a second time." But this one really does drop a lot of hints. You yeah, know? they they were not subtle about the clock tower lightning. No, 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 no. <laughs> Everybody got this. Yeah, yeah. It's but it's Here's cool. a I mean, flyer. <laughs> There's yeah. gonna be lightning. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have sucked if he'd arrived and Doc Brown looked at the flyer and said, "This happened last week." Yeah. <laughs> or, or it happens four years from now you know it's <laughs> i kissed your dad on this date at this time <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah absolutely there's nothing subtle here but that's okay because remember this is a kid's film yeah you know one thing and we've encountered this many times uh in, our, in the movies we've done these days kids films always have something for the adults always something for the parents but back then, a kid's film was a kid's film. They, they weren't going for two audiences. They were going for one audience. And this was aimed at kids and teenagers. Right. And, right. you know, and I, and I think that's just, that's why they telegraph everything. I mean, look, oh. Star Wars is hardly subtle. Raiders of the Lar- Lost Ark is hardly subtle. More um, than this. Uh, not much more. But it was also, it was also a better written stories. Mm. Um, but yeah, so. You know, we learned that we learn about the clock tower and that it was, you know, the, the lightning. Very, that's very the, frightening. <laughs> if I hear the word Galileo out of you, I'm doing the rest of this on my own. It is kind of funny that Jennifer puts her grandmother's phone number on the back of the flyer with I love you. And he realizes it must be true love. Like, dude, she's going camping to sleep with you. I'm pretty sure it's, you know, she has something going for you, but. Whatever but it's that's why he keeps the flyer. I know, I know. Uh, well, also because it has the phone number on it. So yeah, the phone number is kind of important too. Yeah, yeah. But if she didn't write on the flyer, like that's that's yeah. the whole again. Yeah, so no, you're right. It on it's... the back of his hand, then it would have been a much less impactful moment. Yeah, Jeff, I think you stumbled across exactly my problem with this as a forty year old. I'm not twelve. Yeah, this this is written for a twelve year old. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I've seen it, you know, not a lot. I'm not some super fan. I didn't go crazy in 2015 when everyone made a big deal out of this is the day that Marty went into the future. Like even USA Today actually printed the page that he sees in the movie. They actually did that as a as a wrapper on that day's event. And that's cute. And Nike put out the the sneakers that tie themselves and all this sort of thing. Yeah, that's cute. I was never into that. I just I've seen the movie enough. That I've st- I've just I've forgiven that it telegraphs, mm. you know. It's this is one of the reasons I have you guys do this. It's not just me doing it on my own. Most of the movies that we've covered in this podcast, I have seen many times, but you guys haven't. So it's interesting to to get that comparison. Someone who has lived with that movie for forty years versus someone who may not, maybe hasn't seen it in thirty. Anyway, uh, Marty goes home. We discover that the car is a wreck. And Biff, who is a 1970s nightmare, is picking on his dad, who looks like he's an office drone from the 60s. His mom is a 
all puffed out alcoholic. Apparently, that's why they made her makeup the way it was because she's an alcoholic. And I guess the idea is it makes you puffy. I can't speak okay. to that. I, I can't speak to that. Yeah. Um, oh, there you go. There's a scene at dinner where he's eating peanut brittle, and it's a payoff to a joke from a scene that never got. Uh, included where the neighbor shows up with her daughter who's selling it for the girl guides and says, you George, you're going to buy like 20 boxes of this because he's such a pushover. He buys everything. And now he has to just eat this crap for dinner because there's so much of it. That's that's way less weird now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That was very left field. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure why they like, they could easily have cut out the bit where he, where he does fill the bowl with it. I guess I never thought of it. I always assumed, like I didn't realize it was peanut brittle until I listened to the uh, director's commentary. I had always just assumed it was like cereal or something. Yeah. And, you know, we sort of, we had to meet the family, his, his sister. I don't know what she does. She seems, I don't know. She seems like she's almost 30. Like she seems much older uh, than the rest of them. Yeah. She's a bit of an unfortunate creature. I'm not sure. Like I just, I get the impression she's just, fail to failure to launch i could no i i think what they were kind of going for is just like aloof and very self-centered yeah the only thing i can think of is when we see her at the end of the film and she's talking with her brother and they talk about all the different boyfriends she has and i think that's meant to be compared to what we see now which is this girl in her late 20s who doesn't have a husband Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like the big puffy sweater and well, yeah, like I said, yeah. failure to launch. Like she's just this lose. She's an old maid. At- oh, oh, I see what you mean by failure to launch now. Okay. Yeah. Like she's, yeah. Because when we see her in the, you know, in the modified future or in the modified present, she's, she works at a boutique. She has many boyfriends, blah, blah, blah. I Instead think that's what they're going six for. Cats. Got it. Yeah. I think that's the idea. And the, you know, the, the, the other son, He's just a, you know, a burger flipping loser. And, you know, she's a, you know, the mom's an alcoholic whose life pretty much ended after she met George and, you know, someone who went to high school, got married and off she went. But then I think it's hard for us to picture, but for her generation, for my mother's generation, going to high school, getting married and carrying on as a mother at home was a very standard thing to do. Right. Clearly got a lot of broken dreams, though. I'll be honest, when you meet her in the 1950s, she doesn't seem especially ambitious. No, but she seems more lively. Yeah. Like she's got a soul at that point. (laughs) She's she's an 80s girl. (laughs) Yeah, she really really is. And then in the 50s, she's a 50s, 80s girl. Mm -hmm. Girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's still an 80s girl. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Then we get to see Marty sleeping. And again, the way he sleeps, it's the same thing. It's that weird way he his body moves. Like he always seems awkward. You know, like the way he's sleeping with his hand behind his back. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's just there's something odd about him. And it, it it consistently bothers me the way he runs. And we see it in the in the next scene when he arrives at two in the morning at the Twin Pines Mall. And um the way he runs and the way he like everything about him is just he has this really weird way of moving. By the way, when they were filming in this mall, this is when they made the announcement to the crew that they had fired Eric Stoltz. Oh, really? Yeah, like two in the morning. The way, yeah, the way it worked is this mall is it's a hell of a drive from the studio, but it's an actual mall. And after a certain time of night, they could film certain angles 
And then in the middle of the night, when just about everyone had gone home, they could have the access to the whole parking lot. Uh, so they could do the driving around and that sort of thing. And yeah, we, you know, they, they make a point of showing that this is the Twin Pines Mall. Again, it's clever how that will become the the Lone Pine Mall. Okay, whatever. Mm. It's cute. You know, it, and we get to meet Einstein, the cute little dog. And we get to see the time machine, which is a DeLorean. Um, <laughs> Just I a love failure it. failure of a vehicle. <laughs> is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, the the vehicle itself was awful. It was overpriced. Nobody wanted it. It was it was just a showpiece, and that was kind of the reason why they used it in this film was because it was just so iconic. It's a bad vehicle. Yeah, well, the DeLorean itself is a joke. Yeah, is it okay? See, yeah, I had, I had never heard of the DeLorean until I saw this movie, and my knowledge of DeLoreans is that. Mm-hmm. I like how he says, well, I figure if I'm going to travel in, in uh, if I'm going to travel through time, why not go, why not do it in style? Of course, a car like this with the weird doors and all that, of course, that would appeal to Doc Brown. Yeah. That does not all surpri- at all surprise me because it's got that weird 50s sci-fi look going. Mm-hmm. Which and, they neatly put a pin in a little bit later on, the 50s sci-fi look. Yeah. The, uh, you mean the magazine? <laughs> yes. They made that, that particular magazine they made, they, they drew the, uh, the cover art for oh, nice. yeah um it's just one we see later when marty comes dressed as darth vader mm, and yes. he looks over and he looks over <laughs> that is an actual cover they found oh really yeah they just wow. they, they they found it and they used it but the one the first one from the barn yeah that wasn't that they had that drawn up in particular oh, okay uh, which is pretty cool so yeah so you know we learned that yeah doc brown did in fact steal the plutonium which shows two things. One, he's going to jail for a very, very long time. And two, he's actually pretty smart because how the hell else do you steal, you know, plutonium? Apparently they got some expert who said this is what it would look like. Like that's how it's transported in the water. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Because water, apparently nuclear reactors are only dangerous if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. The water itself, it, it, it's great at buffering radiation. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes is a little bit of water. Yeah. Like, my understanding is the uranium that they would use in a nuclear reactor, you could walk around with in your pocket. Now, I don't recommend it for several reasons, but apparently it's not a problem. Like, it's it's just not that big a deal, which, you know, that's neat to learn. Things you learn watching uh, Skeptic's Guide or listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Mm. <laughs> and I only mention that because they did a great review of the movie The Martian, and they talked about the nuclear material there, and they referred back to this. But, uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so we learned that he uh, that the DeLorean is powered by plutonium. I think it's funny that he's just got a standard RC car controller. Yeah. No, it's electrical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just need the plutonium to generate the... The 1.21 gigawatts. gigawatts. Not gigawatts, gigawatts. Uh, yeah. Um, am I the only one here who, who thinks that the fact that he was able to automate... a a car using an RC controller. Like, am I the only one who thinks that's probably one of the major technological uh, achievements of this guy's life? Like he could have stopped there. You know, and I mean, like this, with that level of precision, yes. <laughs> I used to have a controller like that. I mean, not like, you know, with all the no, extra no, no. shit they attach to it, but I used to have an RC car made by uh, Tamiya corporation out of Japan. And th- those suckers went like, 10 kilometers an hour they were serious racers mm-hmm. uh, and the the controllers for them were in 1988 were uh, like 150 bucks just the controller oh wow <laughs> they are serious controllers 
yeah, so we get to see the car. We get to see it go through its paces. The neat thing is about the like the flames that sort of shoot between their legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a hell of a time getting that to work because th- the shit kept blowing out because it would burn too quickly because they were using like gasoline with gel or something like that. Okay, that, um, that wasn't green screen. Well, yes, it was because they didn't want to set them on fire. But yeah. when they actually filmed the flames themselves, they uh... did it. They did it there on the parking lot. Okay. Yeah. This is a special effect that does not work. No, right? it doesn't. The, not at all. Shoot it, like, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, I guess they could go back and redo it, but who cares? Yeah. Like, there, when the DeLorean's driving by, that mm-hmm. effect doesn't work. But doesn't? What is it? No, it, it doesn't. It, when it blows through them, you can very clearly tell that it's green screened. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. look that great. Like they're but, not even touching the road. Yeah, exactly. They're not touching the road. The fire goes right through Marty's foot. It it looks just absolutely atrocious. Yeah. But uh, about 15 seconds later, once they're just sitting there talking, then that's where they've actually got the the gel on fire on the ground, and that yeah. looks good. That's where it, that's how it's supposed to look. That looks fantastic well, yeah, because it's practical effect. Yeah, I don't exactly. know. I th- I thought the uh, the DeLorean entering into the time, like beginning its time travel, I thought it worked just fine. Like it's. Nothing special. It's just some sparks and. I mean, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. the The effect of the sparks, eh? Yeah, it's it's an effect. It works. Yeah, <laughs> and when it re-enters a minute later, it's just a yeah. flash of light. I thought yeah. that worked fine. Uh, I think we were talking about the the scene where where the DeLorean drives through them and the fire starts at their feet. Oh that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. part is that's off. That's off. I'm not sure why that is. Like they had ILM doing this. Like ILM kind of hmm. dropped the ball on this one. Yeah, uh, no, that wasn't. That wasn't great. And, and it's it's a dark background. Like, yeah. seriously. Yeah, yeah it was. Somebody's maybe little brother did it. You know, maybe that's part of the problem is that it's a dark background. But remember that they had to do it again because they'd already done it once for, <sighs> yeah, for Eric Stoltz. I wonder true. how much of this is just, oh, Jesus Christ, we got to do this again. And then we, we don't have a lot of time. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, I wonder, like, there's a lot of scenes that they simply didn't film a second time. Yeah. Because they had less time, you know. Just slap these guys on over top, and yeah. Just, and that's possibly mm-hmm. what it is. I, I I would guess because one of the the pictures you'll see, one of the promotional shots uh, that they were actually going to use for the poster is Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly holding the camera. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they had this all done, and they had taken a ton of promo shots, and then they had to come back and do it again. So yeah. I wonder how much of it is just they ran out of time, which is yeah. ironic considering. Oh, it's out of time. <laughs> also, the license plate, out of time. Out of time, yeah. Out of time, uh, yeah. Uh, however, I do want to take note that this is a point in time where if Doc Brown had anything, even a hair's breadth off, he murders himself and Marty. Yes, Because he, he refuses to let Marty not stand in front of the car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and re-entry. Like, yeah. Oh yeah! By the way, we should get out of the way now because yeah. here comes also, the car. It's their first test, so it's yeah. not like he had any absolute confidence that it was going to work. No, he's an insane, uh, insane mad scientist. Oh, I love it. I, that's what I love about him. You know, he is a great actor. Up until then, I don't think he had done a ton. He had done Taxi, mm-hmm. where he pay he plays a sort of burned out uh, mechanic, I think, and he had done uh, Lord Crooge. The oh, he was, uh, was he a driver? He was, he was a driver. Um, oh, the other guy, right. the other guy was the mechanic. Yeah. Lutka, that's right. 
yeah, he'd also been the bad guy in Star Trek Three, uh, Commander Cruge or Lord Cruge, the Klingon. And I thought oh, he did. A yeah, cool that's right. Yeah, and I thought he did an excellent job. He's one of these actors. I wish they had given him the chance to play more dramatic roles. Uh, dramatic roles. The only other one I can think of him doing was a late season episode of the West Wing where he played a constitutional expert brought in to advise the White House. And it was a completely straight role. It was totally serious. And he did a wonderful job. But I think between Taxi and Doc Brown and, you know, who framed Roger Rabbit, he kind of made his bed. <laughs> it was, he was the only good character in Lone Ranger. That's right. He was in that. I completely forgot. Yeah, he was the he's bad guy. The only in the good team. part. Yeah. He, I, I, the problem is he's he has like six lines and he's a psychopath. Well, I mean, so he's Doc Brown. Doc Brown's not a psychopath. <laughs> he's, he's he's more organized than Doc Brown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Well, Butch Cavendish was trying to like seize Texas, wasn't he? And, and Doc have... Brown's just trying to seize plutonium. It's fine. Everything's fine. Details, details. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of neat. They they talked about the special effect for the like the ice effect on the car. Uh, they use liquid nitrogen. Oh, is that how they did that? Yeah. So they just ran and they would pour it on and then get the hell out of the way. Cool. Uh, which turned out to be very expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, this you is know. this is a note that I I really really enjoyed in this film. A lot of other films would have had the car be hot after traveling through time. I like the fact that it's cold. I think that that's cool. I don't know if there's supposed to be some scientific backing for it or not, but I like no. it. No, they did it because the effect looked cool, mm -hmm. frankly, and it's that's safer fair. than heating the car. That's true. Right. It is a cool effect, but as they point out, as the show, as the, the movie went on and as the sequels went on, they use less and less of it. Yeah. Uh, because it's so, it was so expensive to do. Yeah. Uh, and then you see the inside of the car. And by the way, you think Geek used to sell these, a flux capacitor you could plug into your car and use a USB-N to power it. Mm -hmm. There is a guy out there in California who, if you provide him with a DeLorean, he will trick this car out as the time machine down to functioning buttons and everything. And I can't think of ever loving a movie that much that I'd want that. Though I build the map room of Tannis in a second if I had the money. I was also <laughs> going to say, like, are you sure? Like, if you could build a vehicle from any movie, don't you think there'd be something that you would do? Well, if it was actually a time device, a time travel device, well, shit, yeah. But okay, other than that, sure. No, but but other than that, it'd be the mystery machine. There's a there's the a mystery list machine. Ahead of this one. <laughs> yeah. What was that, Heather? There's there's a whole list ahead of this one. The '60s Batmobile. Yeah. No, I'd uh, I, I'd do the I do the mystery machine. I'm a I'm a purist, but uh, okay. I'm, Kit, I'm seeing the, the, the Knight Rider van or the not the, the A Team van. Mm. Kit from Knight Rider, the the A Team van. When I was a kid, when this movie came out, my mother owned a Trans Am, mm. and yeah, let me tell you that made me for once in my life slightly popular because my mm. mom drove the Knight Rider car. That's cool. I actually uh, tried so watching that show recently. It really sucks. Mm. But uh, so for the record, I'm seeing DMC DeLoreans sold by the DMC DeLorean Motor Company used for as low as 23,000 and as high as 46,000. Well, yeah, but how functional are they? I mean, some of them have got like, uh, let's see, they've all got the VINs listed here. Three, uh, 30,000 miles on them, 21,000 miles on them, 3,500 miles. Yeah, what does that I tell you about the car? <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, the car is trash. We all know the car is trash, but it still seems like it's usable. You go, girl. I'm, well, I'm not buying it. Collectible, at least. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but it's sort of like the old Tucker car. It's collectible, but no one drives them. Or um, you've never heard of the Tucker? Heather, do you know the Tucker? Nope. They made it. Jeff Bridges made a movie out of it about it called Tucker, the man in his dream. A guy in the 50s named, well, Tucker, who was this sort of madcap inventor, invented a car that was miles ahead of where the big three were. It had a pop-out windshield. It had seat belts. The engine was in the back. It was super fast and super safe. And the big three, you know, GM, Ford, and Chrysler or whatever, destroyed him. And the movie's about that with oh, Jeff Bridges okay. and, and River Phoenix. It's it's a good movie. It, it might actually be worth us doing. And it's one of these cars. It's there's only I think they only made a few hundred of them. And it's just a 1950s car, but it's it went nowhere. And no one, you know, no one who owns them is going to drive them a lot because they're precious. Right. Like you can't, you know, it'd be oh. like owning a car from the 1920s. Good luck getting the parts for that. There's a total of 50 of them. DeLoreans? No, uh, Tucker 48s. 36 sedans were oh. finished before the factory was closed. 14, uh, Tucker retained a core of employees who assembled an additional 14 sedans for a total of 50. Okay. The so 51st was partially completed. Okay. It's a good, it's a very, very good, uh, very, very good movie. Again, based on a true story with an excellent cast. But back to our, our lemon of a car, <laughs> the DeLorean. You know, he dials in the date and, you know, it's this amazing, you know, this, this very special date in his life. Here's a red letter date in the history of science. November 5th, 1955. Yes, of course. November 5th, 1955. Why, I don't get what happened. <laughs> that was the day I invented time travel. I guess if the date hung out with you, maybe that is the one you would dial in. It is just conveniently, uh, it syncs up with the lightning strike because of course it does. Mm -hmm. But again, that's okay. Like there's nothing subtle here and I'm fine with that because imagine how depressing this movie would be if they said, you've got to exist here in the shadows for a year, you know? Yeah. I mean that, that as its own movie is kind of an interesting concept. Like, Hey, you have to go back and you now need to exist in this timeline and watch things happen and don't interfere. This is what cost Eric Stoltz's job, though, right? The mm-hmm. idea of making it this this movie where Marty wanders around in despair about his lost future and right. the fact that he's isolated. That's literally what cost him the movie. <laughs> they want, like, or the part. They wanted something lighter, fluffier, yeah. funnier. Yeah. And this is that. Like, that's the one thing I appreciate about this movie is that it doesn't insult the audience by saying that it's tiny, whiny hand-waving <laughs> bullshit it does explain itself it has an internal logic but it doesn't try to get so complicated that you feel like you've got to take notes right it's just a fun summer movie like it's all this was ever meant to be and i think if this been movie if this movie had been made in the 70s or the 90s no one would care about it but the people who grew up in the 80s won't let go of this shit which is why we're doing this podcast you know because <laughs> we won't let the death grip in our childhood what i one thing you you probably noticed, or maybe you didn't notice it, is that when Doc Brown packs to leave, of course, the, the engine of the DeLorean is in the back and the trunk is up front. He yep. puts his, his suitcase in there mm-hmm. and there's a scene they left out where Doc Brown in the 50s goes through the suitcase and learns about himself in the future. Oh, okay. Through what he sees in the suitcase. 
Yeah. And then, of course, he's about to load the plutonium when the Libyans come. And the funny thing is the Libyans are in this like 1960s VW van, which is like the hippie van. Mm -hmm. Right. For whatever reason, growing up because of this movie in my head, (laughs) this is what terrorists drove. (laughs) Volkswagen vans. (laughs) It's just the way it's just that's the impression it made in my head. This was not a van for dope smoking hippies. It was for terrorists from Libya. (laughs) I was a weird kid. What can I say? But Libyan terrorists in the 80s were very topical, right? Mm -hmm. This was about the same time that Ronald Reagan ordered a strike on Tripoli, right? When, When Muammar Gaddafi was in power, killed the man's daughter in the process. You know, Libyans were hijacking aeroplanes terrorists from other countries were escaping to libya to avoid justice including the terrorists who blew up the plane over lockerbie scotland like libya was in the minds of america at least for good or for ill terrorist central you know so of course he chose libyans you know it's uh one thing i noticed it's sort of glazed over no matter how many times i see this is that doc brown has a wild west gun have you noticed the pistol? It's yeah, yeah. yeah he's got a six iron. Is <laughs> yeah, which I don't understand. Like they never make, they never explain why he's got that. I mean, why not? He's an eccentric old man who used to have a family fortune. I suppose they might have some heirloom firearms. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we often forget that when we see Doc Brown in the eighties, he's an old man. Mm-hmm. This is a man who grew up in the twenties. Yeah, was already an adult in the fifties and that's not that far removed from the wild west. Like I saw an interview with a guy named Bertrand Russell. He was a historian and a philosopher. The interview was done in the fifties. You can see it on YouTube. It's a really interesting uh, interview. This man, he was in his eighties when he gave this interview again in the 1950s. Bertrand Russell remembered his grandfather telling him a story of when Bertrand's grandfather met Napoleon. Huh. We're in 2020. You think back, I think back to my grandparents who have all since passed. My grandmother was a little kid during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. My mother, who was 74 tomorrow, you know, she was born in 46. But if you look at Doc Brown, I mean, He's a an old man in the 80s. He was not a young man in the 50s. And his family probably existed in the Old West. Yeah. You know? <laughs> anyway, the Libyans come. They shoot Doc Brown. Marty jumps into the DeLorean, decides he's going to time travel. I don't know why. His car is faster than the VW. He probably could have just gotten away. But then we wouldn't have a movie. So he heads back in time and crashes in a barn. And then... The, uh, you know, the farmer's family comes out and they look at the tales from space, which is not actually a, uh, a magazine. As I said, it was custom made for this. I get a kick out of it. He comes out with like in the radiation suit and they assume he's an alien and <laughs> they scream and they flee. And, and, and the son comes back with the dad with a shotgun. Sorry about your barn. <laughs> It is, how would I put it? Um, It is right for the time. Right. You know, no one in the 1930s talked about alien invaders. Or really the 1940s. 
I mean, with the exception of War of the Worlds, but that was a different story. But science fiction becomes super popular in the 50s because of the space age. And so people's mm -hmm. imaginations extend to that. That's why in, in the 1950s, that's when you start to get stories of uh, alien abduction, because that's when aliens become popular in pop culture. Right. So, so this guy, he looks like a space alien. And the father, who is, you know, some bumpkin farmer, he uh, he has no idea. He's listening to his son, you know, yeah. who's basing his opinion based on tales from space. I, I have to admit, I've read those magazines and they're pretty awesome. But most of the great science fiction authors of, you know, the previous generation, they all got their start writing in those magazines. Mm -hmm. So. Well, it all really? had to stem from somewhere, right? And yep. we don't we don't get to Star Trek Picard without Tales from Space. You're absolutely right. Yeah. In fact, Deep Space Nine did an amazing tribute to these magazines. Yes, that was a great <clears throat> series of episodes. Wasn't, you don't remember, Heather? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if I saw one, it would come back yeah. in a hurry. But... The, we don't really learn what it is for the first little while, but uh, the idea is that Cisco imagines himself as a black writer in the 50s in New York. Mm -hmm. trying to write a story about a black base station commander in the future. And it's all about how no one will publish it because no one would ever buy the idea of a Negro captain and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Does that seem familiar now? Yeah. I rem yeah and, remember that one now. Yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent episode. And then of course, later we learn that it's the prophets giving him a vision because he needs to clarify who he is. Yeah. Um, it's very, very, very well done. And it's all about these sorts of pulp magazines where you pounded out a story a month and you were given, you know, five cents a word or two cents a word or whatever it was. And so you, you wanted to make them bigger, you know, like longer stories. And, you know, we think now of guys like Frank Herbert who published Dune, which is a big book, but it started being published in bits in a magazine like this, because that's how science fiction was produced. In the meantime, he manages to escape. And drive off to, well, he destroys one of the pines, which is kind of cool. I love how the, the farmer shoots after him. And apparently, I'm not sure what the hell he's firing, but that uh, that mailbox goes up like yeah, this a blunderbuss or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is another good callback moment because uh, I don't I don't remember where. Oh, it's when uh, Doc Brown is reminiscing on. I remember when all this land used to be farmland. He specifically mentions the farmer by name, who's name i don't remember off the top of my head and he says oh he was always crazy about crossbreeding those pine trees yeah because i mean that's the whole point i mean it, it the display is two trees in a yeah. in an enclosure and he right. he runs one of them over so of course when he goes back to uh the present the 1980s uh it's lone pine mall yeah is it over the head yes it is it just <laughs> i missed that one <laughs> seriously yeah that it becomes lone pine mall yeah, totally yeah. missed that um well, I mean, I missed the garage, so there we go. You know, things like that, they're clever, and they're not meant to be intricate. Why would no. they be? Who cares, right? In the meantime, he manages to drive off, and the car breaks down, and then Marty tries to stop a car to get help. I still don't know what that old woman says. Listen, you gotta help me. Stop, we'll be dead! Is it don't stop or we'll die? Something like that, yeah. It's, I... I actually rewound it like four or five times and I still couldn't, I still couldn't find it. I should load it in Netflix and, and see the, the subtitles, mm -hmm. but I, I mean, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says I'm old and afraid of everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty much what it is. Um, my understanding though, is that Netflix is not really good with, uh, 
with subtitles. I was listening to a podcast called the West Wing Weekly, which uh, was, you know, strangely enough, goes through the West Wing. And the actors noticed that the subtitles are wrong. In many yeah. cases, they got them wrong because clearly they didn't have the original scripts. They had some dude transcribing for them. So anyway, they, he pushes the vehicle behind the billboard for Lion Estates, which, by the way, it's just a farm. Uh, apparently, they tried to find a, uh, a subdivision that was under construction, but it was way too expensive because they would have had to get an entire street's worth of construction crews to knock off the job for a week. Mm-hmm. And then they thought, well, maybe we'll build that. And they decided, no, that's too expensive. So they just found some farm and put up the the two lions at the gate. And that was sort of it. Okay, fair enough. And I think this is where the magic in the movie starts here. Yeah, when he this goes, is, this is Go where ahead. I start enjoying it. Yes. Like, this is yeah. where it, yeah. it becomes, my, my initial reaction was to say whimsical, but I don't think that's right. But it becomes fun and a lot more lighthearted. And Actually, it becomes, whimsical works really well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it this feels like the action has begun and we're dealing less with people who are just upset with their own life and we've got somebody who now has a problem to solve. Yeah, and and this of course is when he walks into the town square. And I guess uh, one thing they mentioned in the, in the in the director's commentary is how many people on the crew commented that wow, I grew up in a place like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is built on the Universal lot, and it burned down at one point. I think in the nineties. Uh, remember there was that huge fire destroyed the Psycho House. Yeah, uh, and it destroyed all of this, and they actually rebuilt it because apparently it's, at Universal Studios, it's still a hell of a, an attraction. But they built this entire square. I don't remember going to this square, but I definitely remember being nearby it, where they had uh, Doc Brown's chicken as a stand that you could go and get food at. Um, seriously? I, yeah, seriously. <laughs> Doc Brown's chicken—that makes sense. Yeah. Was it laced with plutonium? I don't believe so. I don't think that we actually ate there, but I, I do recall. <laughs> walking past this square when we went to universal okay yeah it's uh it's an actual set back in the day when universal and you know companies still built this sort of thing that is so rare these days that they actually go and build massive structures because it's so much cheaper to just green screen it yeah Uh, the only recent one i can think of is thor one oh did they actually build that little town yeah they built the entire town interesting Uh, with an actual 7-eleven and like they, they got sponsorships for all of these uh, by the way, have you noticed the sponsorships in this movie? All these different people like Pepsi. Oh, yeah. Pepsi and... puts a lot of money into this movie. Subtle. Yeah. Oh, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. Because even, they even talk about it in the uh, in the director's commentary. It's like, yeah, they paid us a lot of money. And then we got a lot of money for this. And we got some money for that. It's like, you guys just hoard yourself out for this movie, didn't you? Maybe that's how they managed to bring it in on uh, on a budget of only $19 million. You know, the, apparently when he asks for a tab in the, in the mall yeah. shop, Pepsi didn't want that because they're a competitor and they said no 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 we got to keep it because that's just too good a joke give me a tab well you got to order something before i can give you a tab uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah pepsi didn't want that line they wanted it removed in the uh and the director refused so good for them but uh you know he goes in and we get to see sort of the world of the 50s like things like the service station where you practically had a pit crew waiting for you to check your oil and fill your gas for you but Heather, I'm not sure about you, but I remember in the 80s when you you pulled up to a gas station and you you filled up, they would ask you, do you need us to check your oil? Yeah, like it, it wasn't four guys about to break into song or anything, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was, like the, it wasn't a fit crew. The guy would, the kid would come out and, you know, start the pump and, you know, wipe your windows and ask about your oil and your washer fluid, windshield wash, wash fluid and yeah, yeah. check yeah. your tires if you needed it. It was a service station. 
yeah, these days it's all self-serve. I get it. It's easier to keep the guy in the, in the convenience store behind bulletproof glass and, mm-hmm. and all that. But yeah, when we were kids, Adam, this was, this, you know, this was a thing. And when my, when my mother was a kid, what you see here was the way it worked. You'd have a, like I said, a practically a pit crew would come out and service your car for you. Well, that's kind of crazy. Cars then were a lot more work too. True. Like they needed a lot more service. Yeah, I guess. Or but... maybe that's just because I always had sh- shitty cars. <laughs> AMC oh, car... Gremlin. <laughs> Chevette. Oh. <laughs> we had we had a Trans Am. What can I say? And I, uh, and I, and I had uh, a twenty year old Suburban. Oh, nice. I like that they spend like they take a couple of minutes to just really let you see the town and how weird he looks. Yeah. Compared to everyone else. The neat thing is, is that uh, when Eric Stoltz did Marty McFly, he was in black head to toe. Really? Yeah. He was all emo, uh, which is really kind of really? funny. He, well, again, it, it had to do with just how he pictured this character as this gloomy guy where mm-hmm. here, like, I mean, how many layers is this guy got going? He's got a t-shirt. Yeah. He's got the, the button down shirt and mm-hmm. he's got the jean, jean jacket, jacket and the, the vest on top of Life it. Vest, yeah. Life, Life vest, vest, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I really, really like about this scene is they do a great job of uh, exemplifying two things. One is all the things that have changed, and the other is all the things that haven't changed. Yes. The things that have changed are innumerable, but one of the things that haven't changed is the fact that the van or the car driving by um, promoting the mayor yes. is still using the exact same slogan that uh, Goldie will be using in, yeah. in the present day. And the same music, too. Yes. That music, though, is very much a 40s and 50s political campaign music. Mm-hmm. It's the standard thing that I'm sure Eisenhower, who was president at that time, he, I'm sure he, he campaigned to it, though he actually had a theme song. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner, beat the drum. But yeah, it's it, it does a good job of showing you just how things have changed, how they're the same. I think this is the point where we see the uh, the memorial, like the war memorial. Yes, just right in front of the uh, the yeah. clock tower. Did you notice how many names were on that? It's a lot of names. That town gave a lot in the in the world wars and in Korea. So wow. <laughs> And usually when they make stuff like that, it's a gag. Like it's the names from the cast. Mm-hmm. That's usually all it is. And in a lot of cases, like the you know pictures, like the picture of the mayor is the set designer. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's it's actually the guy who dressed this set. Uh, they used his picture. There's all <laughs> sorts of things like that. All sorts of in-jokes. But when they did the memorial, it's like, Jesus Christ, did like half the town go off to war and not come back? Like, how was there anyone left to build the memorial? Yeah, there's um, a lot of people on that list. Yeah. Uh, and I just went a little overboard and then, you, you know, they go into the diner and it's like five cents for a, a cup of a coffee. Cup of coffee. Yeah. That, that's kind of cool. So there's uh, another dad joke on the sign. What was the dad, dad joke on the sign? Urns high praise. U R N S. Oh, nice. It's in a coffee urn. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, many dad jokes, <laughs> which is actually kind of okay. I, I yeah. always like dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. Too. But the, 
you know, but but I mean, I think we often forget how much more gentle in age the fifties was, like in pop culture, having come out of the the Second World War. I mean, think back to the types of shows that kids watched back then. There was Cowboys and Indians and you know Space Cadet and that sort of thing. But it was all super gentle. Okay. Yeah. You know, like even by the late sixties, if you think of Star Trek, that was a pretty violent show for its day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of fighting. And yeah, it's the good old, you know, fisticuffs, the hero wins at the end of the day. But there's a lot of death in that show. And there's a lot of a lot of violence. And that show in 1953 would never have flown for its violence. And so these dad jokes, that's part of the gentleness of it, I think. There's a, a Simpsons joke that I know the origin of where he he sees the new, uh, you know, it's the beginning of the month. So he gets to see the new uh, billboards on the side of the road. So he would, remember, he kept slamming on the brakes to read it and he caused a car accident <laughs> behind him. And then he'd drive to the next billboard yeah. stop yeah so a lot of that comes from the 50s when a company called burma shave used to do these really clever poems and maybe signs on the side of the road that you'd read as you drove and they were dad jokes <laughs> it was called burma shave you should look them up um, burma shave all right was there a was there that in um stand by me oh i it's been so long since i've seen that movie i don't know probably because it's like the town from Stand By Me is the East Coast version of this town from effectively the same era. Right. Uh, that's one we should do. That's a good movie. So anyway, Marty's in the uh, in the malt shop. And this is at a time when, you know, in the 50s, malt shops were like the hangout place for high school kids. Uh, they even showed it in the really bad Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Cave or Crystal Skull or Crystal whatever Skull. it was. The malt shop was... In in real life, but also in pop culture, was the cool place for kids to go, where they could dance to cool music because there was a jukebox, and you hung out there after school and that sort of thing. Uh, you could get something to eat, and you could do it super cheap. And then we see George McFly. Uh, one of the most famous pieces of Eric Stoltz work is when Marty sits beside George and sort of his head comes out, and you see the two of them side by side when he realizes, oh my God, I'm sitting beside my father. Mm-hmm. If you go onto YouTube, you can actually see Eric Stoltz do it. It's very, very weird just to see another actor do that iconic shot. But we realized that, you know, George McFly is just as much a loser in 1953 as he will be in 1985. You know, he's yeah. pathetic. Um, he's, he's just sat there and he gets just needled by Biff as he walks in, and gives yeah. that great line of... What are you doing here, McFly? And and both, um, both of them turn, George yeah. and Marty turn and look. And yeah, um, it, it, that's a, a fantastically well done scene. If for you know, like take everything out of it, but um, uh, Crispin Glover's performance mm-hmm. as this just weedly 17, 16, 17 year old kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Crispin Glover did a great job. My understanding is the reason he didn't come back is that he was very hard to work with. I don't know the details of that. Apparently, at first, he had said he didn't want to come back because the character was going in a different direction. And then later, he said it was because of money, because he was offered $125,000 to come back for the second movie. And that was half what the other actors were being played. Now, try, oh, to really? picture a, try to picture a teen star in this day and age agreeing to do a movie for $250,000. Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> yeah. eh? You know, these, these kids were paid like... You know, Michael J. Fox was at this point already a big star, right? He'd already, he was already in family ties. 
Um, he'd already filmed Teen Wolf. Remember, I, I think I mentioned this before. Teen Wolf, they held on to it because they were afraid it would stunt his career because it wasn't that good a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it came, but after Back to the Future was such a success, they put they put Teen Wolf out right away, even though it was filmed at more or less the same time. Still, he was only paid two hundred and fifty grand to make this movie, which I find shocking. This was Tom uh, Tom F. Wilson's first movie, by the way, uh, Biff. Oh, was first, it? Yeah, it was the first movie he he'd ever made. Oh wow. Uh, and he's good. He's, I think he's probably one of the best performances in these three movies. Like he plays young Biff really well. He plays both versions of eighties Biff really well. Old man Biff in 2015 is hilarious. Evil Biff in the dark 1980s from back to the future two is also an interesting character. He drifts a little too close to Donald Trump for me, but uh, I think he did a great job. I definitely agree with you. He, he comes off as a very, versatile actor he plays the same character in a half a dozen different ways and does it very 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 well yeah and that's it's not easy to do especially when it's your first movie i remember these were not filmed in sequence well hang on let's let's be fair ashton kutcher plays the exact same character all the time and (laughs) (laughs) is he still in in movies uh i don't think he's in movies as much i think he's last thing i think he did was that netflix series called the ranch was at least Last thing I heard of him doing. Oh, I saw him in one movie called The Butterfly Effect, which I really didn't like. Uh, to be fair, The Butterfly Effect is like the only time that I can really recall Ashton Kutcher not playing Ashton Kutcher playing a character. Yeah, I guess. Actually, uh, Eric Stoltz is in that movie too. He's in. He's in. Um, he's in Butterfly Effect. Now that oh, I'm is he? Yeah, I, I just happened to notice that on his credits. But you'd think that a an actor of Eric Stoltz caliber would be fired from this movie because he had just done the movie Mask with Cher. It's where he played the guy with the freaky head. Oh yeah, and, the uh, the man with elephantitis, wasn't it? I'm not sure what his issue was, but yeah, and 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 I my understanding was that he was nominated for the role. So, hmm. and it's funny that he couldn't make this work, like this simplistic, silly teen summer film. Right. But again, it's not that he did a bad job; it's that he did the wrong job. I'm trying to imagine what this movie would feel like if it weren't silly, because this movie's very silly. Yes, it is incredibly Absolutely. silly. You know, and I wonder what it would be like with dark emo marty i'm almost I don't, afraid to ask <laughs> i don't think it would be very good i really don't like this doesn't like the edginess of it just doesn't play into it like yeah no no sorry i'm I'm just i'm floundering here but it just wouldn't fit properly at least not to me well yeah, i think no. it would be like he'd be the straight man with a comedy going on around him and i'm not sure if I that guess. works because then you essentially have you have the straight man, you have the serious guy screaming, why won't everyone take this seriously? Whether mm-hmm. he actually says it or not. But, you know, Marty McFly, as played by uh, by Michael J. Fox, is a goofball. Yeah. Like, he's a dork. But then, like uh, Adam was saying at the beginning, Marty and, and Doc Brown are the only two actual real characters in the whole movie. Yeah. So if you take one of them out, what's left? Yeah, and, and I, I wonder how different... Doc Brown would have been playing off a serious emo Marty because, yeah. you know, Doc Brown is able to be as manic as he is because Marty McFly can roll with it, can handle it. Yeah, he can keep up with Doc Brown's insanity. And and accept him for what he is. Yeah. Um, Although, I, I guess that raises the question of, like, was Marty McFly de- uh, like a depressive character before he went back to the past in, in the original styling like was he always kind of that way or well my understanding was is that he was playing him as 
devastated that he had destroyed his own future by going back in time. Okay. So, I mean, in that sense, maybe maybe Marty McFly in the 1980s in the original timeline would have been played similarly to the way that Michael J. Fox plays him. But again, we're just know. speculating. Yeah, because we haven't seen the footage. You yeah, know, exactly. It's one of those things. This movie is simply not popular enough. It's not enough of a cultural thing mm-hmm. other than in 2015 when everyone went, ha, ah, this is where they came to the future. It's right. not enough of a phenomenon that someone would say, okay, let's gather all of this footage up and remake the film. There was never a movement on Twitter, show us the Eric Stoltz cut. I don't think anyone cares. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that is because Michael J. Fox does a good job and makes this character, if not iconic, then natural. It seems natural. So anyway, Biff bullies George. It's the same routine that he did in the 1980s, though, instead of being like reports for work, it's his homework and it's the same thing. Then we get to meet Goldie and we learn he'll be mayor. And You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school and one day I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going Mayor. Now that's a good idea. He's only one of how many black characters are in this entire film? There's the band in him, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that seems very real to me. Like small town America is at least small town America as shown by Hollywood is as white as can be. Yeah. And of course he's just the guy who, uh, you know, who sweeps up and, and, you know, he's the cleaner. Uh, and when he says, Oh, I'm going to be mayor. He says, yeah, colored mayor. That'll be the day. That's kind of neat. You know, maybe, you know, the idea that, uh, that Marty McFly gives him the idea that he'll be mayor sort mm-hmm. of like later in the film that, you know, that it's Marty, Mc, Marty McFly who inspires Chuck Berry to invent rock and roll. Yeah. Apparently they got a letter. The, the, the producers got a letter saying that that made the movie racist. And, in the director's comp, you know, the idea that it was a white man who inspired Chuck Berry to create rock and roll. But mm-hmm. as uh, Bob Gale says, you know who really, really liked this scene? Chuck Berry. <laughs> he yeah. really liked the idea of Marty McFly playing Johnny B. Good. So <laughs> good enough. But uh, so anyway, Marty chases George down. We learn that George is a pervert and not a particularly clever one either. No. Well, this this <laughs> harkens back again to the uh, the scene in the kitchen where... I don't remember why on earth it comes up, but somehow it comes up that Marty's mother and father are reminiscing on how they met. And Marty's mother goes, oh, he fell into the street. What were you doing in the street again, dear? Wasn't it bird watching? Yeah, uh, uh-huh. bird watching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, this is what I like most about this film is that we learn that these characters, like everyone has trouble imagining their parents as anything other than their parents. Mm-hmm. Haven't you always been my mom? Haven't you always been a mom? Yeah. And, you know, we're meeting his father who's just this, let's be honest, a creep. Yeah. And mom is kind of a wild woman. Like she's this very forward, very horny teenager who clearly has been around the block a few times. Um, well, yeah, we find that out later on. Oh, do you think this is the first time I've parked? Yeah, exactly. Like she drinks, she smokes. And I like that because, you know, the thing with the 1980s is a lot, there are a lot of films that take place in the 50s because the people mm-hmm. who were adults in the 1980s were thinking back to their childhood in the 50s. Right. And, you know, TV always presented the 50s as very leave it to beaver, whitewashed and squeaky clean. But, well, you don't think kids drank? You don't think they smoked? You don't think they screwed around in the back of cars? Of course. 
and it's kind of neat that this movie sort of plays with those expectations that, well, dad has always been a square and mom has always been a square. But then we learn, no, no, she was a pretty normal teenager and not at all the good girl that she keeps presenting herself as in the 80s. You know, I don't like that girl, Jennifer, you know, asking boys out and calling boys. What kind of girl does that? <laughs> and clearly it's like, well, you did. I don't know. Maybe she looks back in her, on her life and says, well, I did all those things. And what do they lead me to? George McFly. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just a personal thing, I guess. But like, it's one of the reasons why I don't like Lorraine as a character in the 80s is that rather than, you know, taking those experiences as a kid and saying, hey, th this is the stuff that I did. I understand that kids do this stuff. Let's have a conversation about it. It's just let's condemn everybody else and lie about it and paint myself off as this perfect person. Yeah, that, that's that was that's an 80s thing, though. No, and I, I totally get that, that that's an 80s thing. And that's my my personal view that I'm bringing to it as as somebody who you know grew up in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, it's I, I actually like it. I mean, I don't like the way she I don't like Leah Thompson's performance as the old lady because she sounds like a 20 something year old pretending to be an old lady. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas I think Crispin Glover, who was more or less the same age, did a really good job of portraying himself as an adult. I just don't think Lorraine did her voice. She sounded like a 20 year old pretending to be a little old lady. Mm. Um, but I like that she presents herself as just this bitter woman who doesn't know where it all went wrong and frankly spends her time at the bottom of a bottle. Yeah. Although I, I do want to make note that when you get to these scenes where we see Lorraine and we see George as, mm -hmm. as younger, mm -hmm. the, the makeup team did a fantastic job. The, the visual of it is excellent. I mean, if you, just showed it to somebody and said, oh, hey, watch this movie. There's, I'm sure there'd be a, a good number of people who wouldn't assume that older Lorraine and younger Lorraine were played by the same woman. It's funny. They talked about that because I guess it was uncommon to use the same actors for like young character and then adult hmm. character. Okay. Uh, but they really wanted to and they worked really, really hard with makeup. Like they, I guess they invented makeup techniques for this film. Cool. But I don't, but I don't like Lorraine's makeup in the baseline future. No, I, I think it looks like makeup. Maybe it's because she looks sickly because she's puffed out because she's sort of descended into alcoholism. Yeah. I, I don't think it looks, I think it looks like somebody who uses a bunch of makeup. I, I actually enjoy, I think that it's well done the way that she looks in the eighties. Um, kind of for the fact that you can kind of go like, Oh, it looks like makeup. Oh, it looks like somebody who's caked on a bunch of makeup. Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought about that. She's trying to look good. Somebody mm -hmm. drunk put on too much makeup yeah exactly <laughs> applied yeah. makeup with shotgun she f she felt like crap and put on a bunch of makeup and yeah. had her first drink yeah you know i i hadn't thought of that and that's an excellent point i had i'd never thought about that because george looks exactly as you'd expect george to be if he had stopped growing as a person in the 60s right with uh the short sleeve button-down shirt and the pocket protector and the glasses right out of the 60s like this guy hit about 1960 something, probably when he had his first kid. And then just, he stopped as a human being. He stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lorraine at that point, I'm guessing stopped and started drinking. But, <laughs> you know, but in the fifties, he's a creepoid. He's a peeping Tom. He, you know, I, I mean, at the same time, lady, you know, close your blinds, but whatever, not much to see with those, uh, those rocket brassiers and, uh, you know, they'll put your eye out and, uh, you know, that's a little risque. That's I think this is one of the reasons that uh, Disney wouldn't make the film. 
Probably. It is a little risque. I mean, okay, it's not. It's a bra. Get over it. But for a Disney film in the 80s, trying to pull itself out of its dark period, I can see that. I get it. So he gets hit with a car. After pushing his father out of the way. Out of the way, yeah. Save his life, ostensibly. Yeah. Rather than destroying the timeline. Yeah. And then he wakes up in... You know, 19, you know, he wakes up and he's, oh, mom, I had this dream. And I feel you know, back in 19, you know, 1955 and there's his mother. And it's funny because she sounds like she does in the 80s. But of course, she's this teenager. And I love it's it's actually kind of funny, like how quickly they shift gears with her. Like when we meet her in the 80s, she's this prude. Mm-hmm. And here she's this like super aggressive, just horny teenager. It's hilarious. Yeah. Like she's. She's almost like if it were reversed and it were a guy doing that to a woman waking up, like we'd yell, whoa, stop me too. Like she's yeah, that creepy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like she's wicked aggressive. She wants to look at his underwear. She's put, you know, like she's like, she's super aggressive. And I, I actually find that really funny because it's the exact opposite of what, uh, of what you would expect. In yeah. situation had I been watching this in the 80s, I probably would agree that I would find that funny. But trying to watch it through 2020 lenses and trying to be objective and equal-handed, I, I do find it creepy and weird. And this whole this whole section, while he's in Lorraine's house, I was cringing. Well, that's the point. Like it's but, he but is not, horrified because he's looking at his mother and she might as well be from Mars. Right. But not like good cringe, like, oh, God, this is so weird. Just like, oh, this is gross and I don't like this. And this is just, it it wouldn't have happened anyway. Like, there's no way she would have been alone with them in her room. No, probably not. Um, Like, the dad would have been there. Or the mother. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, like, not the teenage girl because teenage girls are stupid. (laughs) I mean, in fairness, teenage boys are stupid too. So let's. Oh, yeah. It's a a, a teenage thing, but like, there's there's no way. Yeah, it's a good way to introduce the character. It's like a lot of sure. other things in films. You just sort oh, yeah. of accept yeah. it for what it yeah. is. I mean, I guess they could have done it as a slow burn that she's so very different than he expected. But I like that it's a shock to the system. Oh, my God, my mother is this super forward horn dog, And it keeps him off balance. I agree. I, I think that you're definitely right. I think that that plays a lot better than it being a slow burn of him slowly finding out that his mother wants to sleep with him. And it's Spielberg too again, right? Like he yeah. packs so much into every shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's the that's definitely the influence of, Sp- of Spielberg. Mm-hmm. We're gonna Sorry. get ex- we're gonna get all kinds of story in every single scene. Oh yeah, yeah. So. and we absolutely do. Um, right up till you know them doing the the rerun of the show that his father was watching at dinner. Honeymooners, uh, I think. The honeymooners. No, just, yes. sorry, Jackie. Yeah, Jackie Gleason. So there's the honeymooners, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They've got uh, his uncle who was uh, going or wasn't granted parole in the 80s right, uh, right. in a in a crib. And he Makes says, get joke, used to yeah. these bars. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. And there's, the kid with the, coons, the coonskin hat. That's from Davy Crockett. And those yes. hats for young boys were the thing. Mm-hmm. Every boy wanted to be Davy Crockett, you know, with their with their rifle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'll shoot your eye out if you remember the Christmas story. It's the same yes. sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Red Rider BB gun. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's all the same sort of thing. Yeah. Like all these great references and, you know, the fact that he has to fight to get the TV working because those TVs back then were just insane. And the fact that he says, you know, we have two TVs. And like, no one has two TVs. Even in the 80s, 
we had one main TV. We had this crappy little black and white thing that my mother used to use in the kitchen. I wound up attached to my Atari 2600. And then it was a big deal when they bought a second TV to put in their bedroom. But I mean, how many TVs do you grow up with, Adam? Like a TV in my parents' room, a TV in the basement, a TV in the living room. Uh, yeah, like three or four TVs sometimes. Yeah. When I was 13, I got my own TV. I had no choice. They didn't really have a choice. I got a Nintendo Entertainment System for my for my bar mitzvah. It was kind of useless without a TV. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Heather, how many TVs you grew up with? Zero. Well, you had some TVs in your house. You watched VHS videos. Well, yeah, like I was. We didn't have one my whole life. We we got one when I was. Uh, my dad used to bring a computer home for the summer, so oh. I had like a computer monitor, which could also I- be a TV in those days. Yeah. And then eventually they got a TV. Okay. And then eventually they got cable. Yeah, it was much less common. You know, so when he talks about having two TVs, even even in the 80s, I think that would have been less common than than you'd expect. I mean, look, my father was a dentist. We had money. So TVs were never an issue. But having two TVs in a middle-class home was kind of a status symbol. And certainly in 1955, having a TV at all was a status symbol. Those Mm -hmm. suckers were expensive Mm -hmm. and they were huge. They were, you know, they were tiny little screens and they were these big wooden installations and they described it really well in MASH that, uh, you know, they they can watch, uh, you know, Jackie Gleason and he's got a little two inch ghost that follows him everywhere because the reception was shit. So it would create a double image. Both sets of my grandparents had one of those. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are those things were ancient. And they actually talk about that later when they hooked the video camera up to Doc Brown's television. They couldn't do it. I would have thought it would have been easy because of the screws on the back. But TVs used to have these two screws on the back, and you'd attach this, this little thing to it with a slider on it, and it was attached to an antenna. Yeah, it was two prongs, and you'd screw them in. Um, that's how you. That's how you hooked up your Atari. That's how you hooked up. Just a, a quick side note, guys. We got another storm rolling in here, and this one's got a lot more lightning. So uh, if there's a possibility that I suddenly drop connection, that's why. <laughs> but also, will you time it correctly with the car? <laughs> probably not. I heard that. <laughs> Could you hear that? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. We're good here? Good. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. So Marty finds out where... Uh, Doc Brown is. It's interesting that he doesn't recognize the street, despite the fact that he was just there the other day. Like he was just there the previous day at the garage. Mm. So I guess they maybe they've redone the street, or maybe just that he's disoriented because Mill Valley is such is is become such a small town, having gone thirty years in the past. In fairness, Marty has no idea where this what a sixteen forty Riverside Drive is. Um, he knows it as, was it JFK Boulevard or something like that? When he asks, right. um, Lorraine's parents, he's, well, where is this? Oh, it's one block past this. And they go, oh no, that's, that's JFK, isn't it? He goes, who? Yeah. In 1955, very few people would have known who John F. Kennedy was. <laughs> uh, well, he was known because his father, Joseph Kennedy was a big deal, but yeah, sure. no one, he certainly wasn't well known. So yeah. So he goes out and. We meet Doc Brown, who's got this wacky ass thing on his head, which I'm not sure what he thought would it would do. It was it was a mind reading, I think. Yeah. And he he tries to you know he he's trying to guess what he is, and he's part of the you know the the youth auxiliary for the the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Of course, Marty's already lied and said he is a member of the Coast Guard because he's got sick of people asking about his vest and why is it a a life, a life preserver. preserver. Those things are in, in fashion again, aren't they? That style. puffy vests. 
Yeah. Are they are they back in? I don't know. I don't know. I was never that cool, so I couldn't tell you. I have one, so probably not. <laughs> just just by definition, if you have one, it can't be cool. Um, <laughs> I'm probably about three years late then. It is kind of neat how he you know, he tries to prove that he's, you know, he's from the future. And no matter what he says, Doc Brown won't believe. And he says, okay, who's the president in 1980? And he says, Ronald Reagan. And <laughs> of course, that you know, that was a great joke for its time. He says, Ronald Reagan was, he was an actor and not yeah. even a particularly good one. He's, in fact, he's a failed actor. I mean, he only ever did like B movies. Well, they even had one of Ronald Reagan's movies playing in the theater in the square when they show up. Did they? Yeah, yeah, it lists Ronald Reagan as the second title or the second lead oh, in the film. I missed that. And he says, you know, so I suppose Jane Wyatt is the first lady because he was married to Jane Wyatt at the time. By the way, she played Amanda, Spock's mother, in uh, the Star Trek original episode, uh, Journey to Babel, and in, in Star Trek Four. But anyway, oh. uh, yeah, and then he, he divorced her, I think, in the 50s by, and then married Nancy. But, you know, it's funny, but now imagine Back to the Future being remade now. And 2020, Marty McFly, going back to the 80s, and Doc Brown says, oh, really? Who's the president of the United States? Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Get out of my shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so eventually, he convinces Doc Brown that he's from the future because he knows how Doc Brown hurt his head. Yeah. That he slipped on the porcelain and smashed his head on the toilet while hanging a clock. And that's where he came up with the idea for the flux capacitor. So right. they go out, they get the car. What I love is that uh, Doc Brown is a slightly different character in 1950. Like he's, he's, more, he's, he's more manic, but he has to be set off. Whereas by the time we see him in the 80s, he's always kind of manic. Yeah, he hasn't lost everything yet. Yeah, and I wonder yeah. if that's part of it. You, you sort of wonder, did he lose his mind when the place burned down? Is that what it was? Or is just over time, has he slowly just, you know, lost it? It's hard to tell. Did, did his brain go all mushy? Yeah, pretty much. Because if you remember in the dark 1980s, they show him being institutionalized. I remember they show a picture of him in the straight mm. jacket. In the, in the newspaper. He's gone mad. Immediately, Doc Brown, once he realizes what's going on, he says, you know, it's it's time to send you back to the future. So when you say, you know, Doc Brown's an asshole, that's where I have to disagree because the minute Doc Brown realized what the problem is, he doesn't think, okay, well, I can, you know, I can get all this information and I have access to all this technology from the future. Think what I can do for myself now. No, mm -hmm. he says, let's get you back. Let's fix things. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he doesn't think of himself. He thinks of someone else. And I, I think that just makes him decent. Like somewhere in there behind the mania and the, not insanity, but getting there. Eccentricity. Eccentricity. Let's go with that. This, you know, behind all the eccentricity is a fundamentally decent guy who wants to help this kid out. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to learn in a few lines how they met. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like obviously in the altered future, he seeks him out because he knows he's going to meet him. But how did he initially meet him? You know, we never yeah. learn. He just, they know each other. Uh, well enough that he welcomes into into his home and he trusts him to film his experiments and that sort of thing. And he, he builds this incredible amplifier that will render him deaf and probably brain damaged and <laughs> all these sorts of things. Also, Doc Brown's pretty calm when they t when he takes him back to the school. Uh, the neat thing about the high school, if you look at it, it's very 1930s. A lot of these schools were built in the 30s. They were part of works projects to get people working. Right. Like in the midst of the Depression. Again, this is the high school they filmed inside and out. This is the high school that Richard Nixon attended, hmm. which I guess that'd be the 30s. 
early 30s. I'm not sure. Richard Nixon was, I mean, Richard Nixon, when this movie takes place, Richard Nixon is the vice president. He was Ike's vice president. I love the styles that, like, if you look at George McFly, the way he's dressed, he's actually pretty stylish, believe it or not. Like, he's not badly dressed. He he actually, like, you get the impression that with a little bit of nudging, George McFly could have been a cool guy. Yeah. Or co- cooler. <laughs> well, I mean, like, even even later on when, when Marty mentions him to Lorraine again, she goes, oh, yeah, well, he's he's pretty cute, but X, Y, Z. Yeah, but he's no Calvin. Calvin. Mm. The, the whole Calvin Klein thing I found was amusing. I've, I don't know. I don't wear Calvin Klein underwear, but... I get it. It's what trendy hip kids do. Apparently, I couldn't say, but uh, yeah, I love. It was huge in the eighties. Was it? Uh, I wasn't a trendy hip kid by any definition, but like the rich kids and the popular kids in my school were all oh, Kelvin Klein. Huh. Okay. I mean, is is he cool? Because he seems to be one of the few people wearing a jacket. Eh, no, it's not that know, he's like cool. a blazer like he's that. Stylish. He's not. Like he's not dressed like a slouch. He's not wearing baggy brown mm. formless stuff. Like he's dressed nicely, which maybe is his mom dresses him. I don't know, but he's not. Pl- I mean, look at the way Biff is dressed. Like when mm. we see him later, let's just zip over. Look yeah. at the way Biff is dressed. Biff is dressed like a yokel, right? He's not well-dressed at all. Even his friends are better dressed than he is. By the way, uh, you know, the actor Billy Zane, he was one of Biff's thugs. But he wasn't available the day they filmed this scene in the cafeteria, so he's not there. But yeah, Billy Zane is one of the uh, one of his thugs. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's neat to see Marty interacting with George. Like George is a writer. You know, what really surprises his son. Marty mm-hmm. is shocked to discover that you know, like, oh, you're creative, really. So much of this film is about Marty learning that his parents are real human beings. You know, they're not mom and dad. They're actually people who had lives. And right. dreams and maybe they were going to succeed or maybe they weren't it's one of those things like i just i picture parents looking at their kids in 1985 and saying see i was cool once too just like that you know this is definitely like when we when we finally see marty and george in the cafeteria it's definitely the the biggest me too scene where you know yeah. Biff is all over her and it's like oh you know you want it you know you want me to give it to you yeah no yeah. that's that's just gross and disgusting and well, I mean, actually, that's not the biggest Me Too scene in the movie. The biggest Me Too scene in the movie is uh, just before George knocks him out. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but guys like that existed in the 50s. Mm-hmm. They sure should existed in the 80s. I remember guys like, I mean, not quite that overt, but damn close. Mm-hmm. It was close. Yeah. And I'm sure there were plenty who were worse. Like when the Me Too movement happened and I remember thinking, yeah, it's about time. Is There's a lot of biffs out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the sort of the compare. I mean, when we say, well, you know, when you, when you look at it and the way Lorraine behaved towards Marty in the bedroom, I think the difference is that Biff's a big, strong guy and he can get out of her what she wants. Mm-hmm. Lorraine, no matter how sexually aggressive she is, only gets to take from Marty what Marty wants to give her. Right. Because, I mean, he's, a, he, it, as it happens, Michael J. Fox is a small guy, but. Guys are bigger. Guys are generally stronger and yeah. denser muscle mass. Yeah. 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 It's just like, that's why it's, it's not the same, but that's just, that's how I view it anyway. Well, um, so I'm, still no means no. Yeah. Abs- yeah, absolutely. It, no means no. So Marty chases George back to his house and decides, you know, like George says, I you know, was it nothing on this earth is ever going to make me ask her out. Yeah. And then you have what I think is the funniest scene in the movie. <laughs> 
which is when he puts the music, he puts the uh, the headphones on George and slips in the tape and says Edward Van Halen. If you're curious why it doesn't just say Van Halen, it's because the band would not give the movie studio permission to use its name. Oh, really? But Eddie yeah. himself was totally cool with it. Awesome. Well, so they wrote Edward Van Halen on the tape. That's cool. I mean, Eddie's Eddie's always been a pretty cool guy when it comes to a lot of that stuff. Like if you read interviews with him, he is very much a, a laid back and he just wants to see what the coolest thing is. I can't like, claim which, to know anything about the guy. Which I, I mean, yeah. it, it really inspired a lot of his music is what is the coolest thing that I can do here? Him building the Frankenstein guitar. Anyways, that's a discussion for a different time. Yeah. But it is kind of neat that he lent his he lent his name to the tape. And it's mm-hmm. this is the music he's playing. Is it Eddie Van Halen's music? Um, I, th- I don't recall. Is it eruption that he plays? How the hell would I know? It's, You've met me, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, so. It's loud. It's, yeah, I can't it recall. It sounds like Van Halen. Yeah, I just love how it's just it's so it's so overwhelming. It's like he has no idea what's being what's mm-hmm. being done, and and Marty's in the the suit. It's like Heather, take Heather? the things off your ears. Oh yeah, dummy. But, uh, oh yeah. He didn't feel them. Like he just woke up and. You know, he doesn't know oh, what's going come on. on. I mean, he reaches up and grabs them. Yeah, it's a it's a good scene. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's 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 a silly scene. Who are you? Silence, Earthling. My name is Darth Vader. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. And then he does the salute and he's got the hair dryer. Did you notice he yeah. has a hair dryer as a ray gun? Yes. That's hilarious. It's, it's a great scene. And it turns out the magazine beside him there mm-hmm. is a real magazine. They found that just happens to look a lot like the rad suit that, that right. Marty's wearing. Awesome. Um, it, it's, it's a good scene. I get a kick out of it. Like that is, it's it's just the culture shock of the 80s being used as a weapon in the 50s. It's really, really cute. And the next day, you know, Marty bumps into him and there's sort of the opposite. It's Marty not knowing how to operate in the 1950s because he doesn't know how to get the, the top off of the Coke bottle. Yeah. Because he's not used to like can opener or not can opener, uh, bottle, uh, bottle opener. Yeah. He's, he's uh, a twist top guy. Yeah. yeah. See, uh, I actually I read that slightly differently when we were when I was watching it for the first time in that this was him presenting an opportunity to George to do something for him. Like, oh, oh I'm sure. just going to sit here and pretend to twist this thing until he just oh, oh, over and does it. Um, no, I mean, I mean, I guess that's what interpretation I looked at it and I saw a guy who just didn't know what he was doing Jeez. because in the 80s, everything was either a twist top. Or a can, right? Like a, Happy Pop was uh, was the like the yeah, yeah, to use a you needed a can opener, yeah. Yeah, I I don't think there's anything deep in there. I think it's just because remember he was working on it when George came up to him, like mm-hmm. he was already trying to get it off, okay, and he fair. couldn't. And and George to him is just so obvious. Well, here, wouldn't you do that? And I mean, he uses the, the it was it like a gas station, it's a gas pump, yeah. a gas pump. Was it an actual bottle opener or is it just used? Well, like I a, thought it I, was a bottle opener. Yeah, I would imagine that there's probably just a bottle opener mounted on the side of the gas pump. Yeah, but it's just so funny that, you know, 
last night he used the you know the, the Walkman and the Rad suit to freak him out, and mm-hmm. you know terms that for us you know Darth Vader and Vulcan those are seventies and sixties terms. Even in the eighties they were old terms, but they're new to George. And then the simplest thing trips Marty up. As sophisticated as he is, he doesn't know how to do something simple like that. And it was a neat juxtaposition that they mm-hmm. came. It's a, it's a comparison of not of knowing your era yeah. but not knowing the other. And then you know he sort of coaches George. George goes in. And I got to say, Lorraine's pretty easily impressed yeah. because his delivery. Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. What? Oh, what I meant to say was. Wait a minute. Don't I know you from somewhere? Yes. Yes. I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. It's a well-acted scene. Crispin Glover's a hell of an actor. And Lorraine's, like, he's almost got Lorraine in the palm of his hand until Biff shows up, and then you get the fight and the skateboard scene. Um, I had seen pictures of those skateboards before with the wooden crates on top. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is they were meant to be, like, like futuristic space scooters i think that was the idea i have no idea when skateboards become a thing i think it's the 70s that sounds right i couldn't say i was never a skateboard person it's all so 50s like him you know using the skateboard that was a you know a rocket car or like a space bike thing Mm -hmm. being chased by a bunch of thugs in this gorgeous car from the late 40s the one thug has got the 3d glasses on yeah because those sorts of movies were a thing and then it all ends in wah, wah, manure yeah. like yeah. getting, <laughs> getting spun out into manure yeah like it's it, but it's so gentle like the, the car doesn't flip over there isn't an mm-hmm. explosion nobody gets hurt it's just a pratfall you know like the movie itself has become gentler because it's in the 50s right yeah um, and you know we go back to the to the garage and we learn how it is he's going to send the uh, the car into the future. I love how he he puts together the model and says, "Sorry, I didn't have time to paint it." And you yeah. look at this amazing <laughs> model he's put it, together. This highly think, detailed, intricate model. <laughs> yeah, and you wonder what like what the hell is he thinking? It's it's a ridiculous plan mm-hmm. to capture the lightning, and it, of course it's absurd. But that's why I like it because it's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, how else are they going to do it? Like at that point, just make it something interesting that'll yeah. add some tension and a lot of timing and it'll be exciting mm-hmm. when it happens. Yep. Uh, you know, there's a, I, there's other ways they could have done it, but I like the way they did it. And I like that Lorraine shows up and she's being super forward because she followed him, but she still has to fall back on 1950s convention. I'd like you to ask me to the dance. Yeah. And I mean, that is one thing that at least future Lorraine maintains in in step with past Lorraine is that she doesn't ask boys out. Yeah. Boys have to ask her out, even if she has to ask them to ask her out. <laughs> I tell you what, I grew up in the 80s. Girls didn't ask guys out. No, it wasn't a thing. It mm-hmm. wasn't a thing. But uh, I mean, like that, what I'm saying is that kind of falls. Yeah, 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 step. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. But that's interesting that that's the same in both times. Like there's in the States, they have these dances. I've never heard of them being held here. They're called Sadie Hawkins dances. Uh, you ever yeah. Heard the term? yeah. And how does a Sadie Hawkins dance work? Uh, the girls are the ones who are supposed to ask the boys to dance. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. And I have no idea what the reference is, but that's an American thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the point. It's, it's the exception that proves the rule. Girls don't ask guys out. We see the next scene where they're hanging clothes. 
you're coming to a rescue, right? Okay, let's go over the plan again. 8.55, where are you going to be? I'm going to be at the dance. Right, and where am I going to be? You're going to be in the car with her. Right, okay, so right around 9 o'clock, she's going to... All right, so the next scene is the night of the dance and them checking out the, uh, you know, the, the weather station and all that sort of thing. And there's a cut scene, and I saw it, and I, I, I meant to send it to you guys in advance because it's horrific, where he says... Doc, I'm really not sure that I can put the moves on my my mother. I mean, that could screw me up. I mean, what happens if I turn out gay? Oh. Yeah, that's like super cringeworthy. And it's just like, thank God someone left that one on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1980s, that would have been no problem. Yeah. That would have been no problem. Because when I went to school, fag was still a pretty common epithet. Mm-hmm. And that's just like this movie dodged a bullet because if this movie had that line in it today, this movie would be even even to the 2000s, people would have started looking back on this and going, oh, dude, you know, but think how many movies have have been saved by editing, including the original Star Wars. I mean, if you've ever seen the, the scenes they cut out of the original movie, A New Hope, you go, thank God. So Marty writes the letter to Doc Brown, you know, do not open until 1985. and slips it into Doc Brown's jacket and then heads off on his way to the dance. I guess they got a letter from some kid in Japan who noted that the letter Marty wrote and the torn up letter that he is shown back in, in 1985, they're not the same letter. Oh, really? They're not the same letter. The words are not in the same positions on the page. Mm. Some little kid in Japan complained about it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty sure they weren't going to go back and digitally correct that, but it's one of those you know, nifty things. So they have the dance and they decided on, apparently they decided on the theme for the dance by actually looking at old yearbooks and how many of them had an under the sea vibe to them. Okay. You know why? Because it's easy to create the, uh, the under the water lighting effect with a disco ball. Frankly, you know, it's it's easy, but yeah, that was a thing they did. And then you see Marty and Lorraine park. And again, this is the scene that almost cost this movie, it's his existence. Mm-hmm. Disney would not allow the movie because of this scene. A lot of people said, nah, you're going to have this, this woman make out with her, her son. There's no way. And it was only when Zemeckis said, yeah, well, but Steven Spielberg is producing it. They went, oh, okay. He will make sure it's done tastefully. Right. And I think it is like, really there's other than, I mean, she sort of pulls it, like she takes off her jacket. She's wearing this, you know, the strapless dress, but she was going to take that off when she went in anyway. Mm-hmm. He's a little freaked out just because it shows a little more than I'm sure he's ever seen of his mother. Yeah. Um, because I don't think she dresses that way. I mean, if you look at the way she dresses in the baseline 85, 1985, she dresses very frumpy. You know, she tries to kiss him and it's immediately obvious. This is all wrong. I, I don't know what it is. But when I kiss you, like I'm kissing my brother. I guess that doesn't make any sense, does it? Believe me, it makes perfect sense. I thought that was very cool. Like it was. Yeah, yeah that's a that's a well well done way to handle. This is wrong, and we need to explain to everybody that it's wrong for everybody involved. Yeah, and why it's wrong. Yeah. And- all the creepy evaporates. Yeah. yeah, I think it was exceptionally well done. But I can understand, probably in its earlier iterations, a studio looking at it and going, oh, no, no, yeah. no, no, we can't do that. I get that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, again, think of 
Imagine if George Lucas was telling the truth and he really had written all three scripts at once. <laughs> Who the hell would have allowed the teasing of a Luke Leia romance to go through the first half of Empire Strikes Back? Yeah. Right? Knowing that. Because that's always my immediate response to someone who says, oh, he's a genius. He planned all this out. Really? He planned on, on suggesting incest? Really? And I say, well, it's not that big a deal because it wasn't that big a kiss at the beginning of Empire. But I've seen the cutscenes that you can see on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And when we do the, when we do the, eventually the Star Wars Day, one day when we can all be in the same room, they show the, the version of that kiss they didn't show. It's a lot smoochier. <laughs> like oh. it's not tongue lashing, but it's right. a much deeper, much more sensual kiss. Biff drags him out of the car immediately after and locks him in the trunk of this car. And out well, of it he- comes... He sends his cronies to go lock him in the trunk of the car right. and he stays in with Lorraine. That's right. And this whole band comes piling out of the back of this truck. Mm. And at one point they make the comment, you know, I don't want, uh, I was, I don't want no trouble with no reefer addicts. And I'd never seen the movie reefer madness, which oh, is really? like the anti-marijuana film they made in 1936 or something. Mm-hmm. But my understanding was based on some reading is that it's racist as hell. Mm-hmm. The, some, the, the, the idea being because in the thirties, it was mostly black Americans who, who smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. It was, it was part of the, um, the smear campaign used against the hemp industry, um, by William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. He yeah. was, he was part of that whole smear campaign and it was used to, uh, it was stated that hemp is producing marijuana and marijuana causes the, the, I'm going to use the term African-American to rape white women. And it yeah. was, it was part Pretty of the sure he didn't use the term African-American. Certainly not, but Actually, I'm trying to use the term Negro. Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to be slightly more progressive here. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough, I saw someone the other day saying, please don't call us people of color. That's a political term. I'm black. Yeah. So I just, as long as you avoid the, the, the big end bomb, I think you're good. But what I really liked, and I even noted it back then, because these are the only character, these are the only African-American characters who, who have any character. I mean, mm-hmm. Goldie is, a, you know, Goldie is what, 30 seconds worth of, of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. But these guys, even just the way they look at Marty when he's playing, they have a lot of character to them. They yeah. have a lot of personality. Uh, I love how they call him boy. Mm-hmm. We could go into, we could spend hours analyzing that. And we're not going to. It is kind of neat that we get to encounter them. And then, of course, George comes upon Biff with Lorraine. The pl- you know, we, we haven't mentioned the plan, which is that, you know, Marty will get fresh with Lorraine. George will come and punch him in the stomach and, and be the hero. He does not expect to find Biff there. What I love is that he just lays Biff out. Mm. Like, it takes him a second, but it's after Biff shoves Lorraine to the ground that he turns around and sees this and then mans up enough to actually clock Biff. Yeah. And, you know, that's the one thing Like George always comes across to me as this complete loser who's always just one step away from being a normal human goddamn being mm-hmm. who, ha- who could have friends. And that doesn't seem to me particularly reasonable because people who are socially maladjusted... They don't just get over that. Yeah, it's like, not a thanks, I'm cured moment. Exactly. And he does have a sort of relapse in the dance when uh, that other character played by Courtney something or other, I can't remember his name, the redheaded, mm-hmm. says, oh, I'm taking, I'm taking the, uh, the dance. And then he comes back and pushes the kid away. And they, they dance and they kiss. And then the future mm-hmm. is secure. By the way, did you recognize that redheaded kid? He played one of the people from the Burbs. He's the redheaded guy from the Burbs. Remember, it came with the frame. His name is Hans. What ends up happening is Marty winds up being drafted 
uh, into the band because getting him out of the trunk slashes up the guitarist's hand. They play the song, you know, this romantic number. Uh, this right, this creepy redhead pushes George aside and takes Lorraine out for a dance. George finds his testicles for a second time, pushes the redhead down, dances, and they kiss, and the future mm-hmm. is back. <laughs> One of the Go things ahead. that I really like about this scene is that um, it's this is the only point in time where we actually get George doing something of his own volition. Marty has no influence here. This That's is true. actually like this That's- is actually George changing. Yeah, because even punching Biff, that was the plan. It just yeah. happened to be it wasn't supposed to be Biff. Yeah, it was it was all orchestrated and set up by Marty. Yeah, um, you're right. This is the first time he just sort of does it himself. And it's so comical. Like, he just pushes the guy, and the guy just lies there on the ground. Yeah. And then they do the second song. It is not Michael J. Fox singing Johnny Be Good. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? <laughs> With someone else, but they pointed out that Michael J. Fox practiced that routine for days and days and days. He wasn't just pissing around; he really worked at it. Like he really put his all into it. Well, um, I mean, that's that's lifted right from Chuck Berry, like all the way down to it? laying on his back and and crawling across the floor. Oh, I didn't know that actually. I, yeah. I had no idea. But I assume not kicking over the uh, the no, amplifier that, and that wailing on his guitar. <laughs> yeah, but I love when he starts doing that. And he's on the floor and the the big guy yeah, looks at him like what kind of freak are you it was hilarious yeah. like the looks on their faces on the band's faces because at first they're totally into the music and then he goes like 1980s metal and they look at him like he grew horns yeah when he starts to get into like the thrash part of it that's that's where it, it comically falls apart and this is like great i love so much about this scene oh yeah it's a cute scene you're not ready for that but your kids will love it. Yeah, exactly. It's probably my favorite line in this movie. And then there's a really cute scene where he says, you know, if, if you have a kid named Marty and he turns eight and he sets fire to the rug, maybe be nice with him. Mm-hmm. That's a cute moment. But yeah. one thing I noticed is the body language of George and Lorraine. George is much more upfront. He's much more mm-hmm. confident about the way he's around. Well, girls, like, yeah. she's his girl now. And he behaves that way. Like, their boyfriend and girlfriend, he's much more confident in the way he stands and the way he looks at Marty. And it's a subtle thing because I don't think George says a damn word in that whole little scene backstage. No. But he's very clearly a different man. Um, yeah. Like just the way that the two of them stand together. Well, they look like a couple, like a yeah. couple that's now comfortable with each other. And they've yeah. been together like for one song yeah. <laughs> or for a song and a half. Anyway, Marty goes back. They hop in the, uh, they hop, you know, he hops in the car. Uh, there's the hijinks with, the uh, cable. I actually thought it was kind of silly that twice the the cable disconnects. Yeah, we yeah. got it the first time. Why are you doing it a second time? Mm-hmm. Uh, that came off to me as a little silly. Yeah, uh, because he... the rest of it is so dead serious and and highly accurate and very technical. So this was just too, you know a bridge too far for. So this okay. this the cable coming undone a second time is a bridge too far for you. That Absolutely. the rest of it is scientifically accurate and plausible and. That's yeah. that's your that's the line you're going to draw? <laughs> yeah. Didn't they talk about the time travel from Back to the Future in Avengers? 
in in the last one, Endgame or whatever it was? Um, don't, don't they know. talk I've... about Back to the uh, Future? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I've only okay. seen it once. I'm not so. sure. Yeah, I saw it the one time. Actually, it's one of the few of those Marvel movies I liked. Oh, the yeah. lightning starting <laughs> outside. And I, Jesus, talk about good timing, eh? There's lightning yeah. outside my window. And what were you talking about? The lightning scene. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, this whole thing with how they're going to get power is ridiculous. Man, the electricity passes through that cable awfully Very slowly. slowly. Yeah. I think if this movie were being made today, they wouldn't have done it this way. They would have had the car parked and attached, and it would have sort of been hit with the lightning and then blasted off. Yeah, I think there like would, that. you know, it's these days, sort of, it's, it sort of, it sort of goes with his Goldberg machines from the beginning though. Absolutely. Over, yeah. Overly complicated. Mm-hmm. And needlessly. So, yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. I think also, you know, we tend to, when we do these episodes, we tend to say, well, this wouldn't work this way. And why does this work? And mm-hmm. we tend to try and want to create like this coherent story. When in the eighties they just said "fuck it, make a movie." Like yeah. to hell with it. What are we doing? And to entertain you know? the kids for two hours. Yeah, just yeah. let's make a movie. And we expect more now because internet culture. You know, you're going to see that movie twenty times. Mm-hmm. You're going to go see it in the theaters twice, but then you're going to watch it on Netflix until your eyes bleed. Then you can pause and you can read what's on the page that they're holding in their hands. Mm-hmm. And even they pointed out it never occurred to them that anyone would read the letter that was torn up and then taped back together by Doc Brown. Uh, which, by the way, we missed. He sees the letter and tears it up. Yeah. Um, they said, you know, like, yeah, they were gonna, someone's going to watch that on video, but it never occurred to us anyone would pause it and try and read the letter and realize we'd use a different letter between shots. Whereas these days, that's what all, like, all these movies, especially pop culture movies, that's what everyone does. Yeah. There's a fantastic subreddit uh, called Movie Details, and they oh, will go through and they will they will find the neat little things like, oh, because uh, some character mentioned this early on in the film. Like, it's it's the kind of stuff that people who watch movies a dozen times over just love to find the small little details that it's the Easter egg for you and only you. Yeah. And really, a lot of those Easter eggs aren't intended for the audience, especially mm-hmm. the ones from the 80s. They're intended as in-jokes among the cast. Yeah. Like the the goddamn Wilhelm scream, which yeah. I hate, hate, hate. But <laughs> Sorry, it's an you in-joke. said it, so it has to go into the... Yeah, 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 yeah. That is a joke among sound editors. Mm-hmm. There's no director or sound editor in his right mind who says that that's a knee slapper. They're going to be laughing their butts off in the theater. No one thinks that unless you're, you know, a lunatic. So this is all an in-joke among... Hollywood people. Mm-hmm. But these days it's all for the audience. I remember they interviewed, you ever see the honest trailers on uh, YouTube? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those things are glorious. And they interviewed the, the Russo brothers, the ones who directed Captain America, winter soldier. Mm-hmm. And they said explicitly, we wrote this movie. So you couldn't make fun of us in an honest trailer. <laughs> so you're like, here's an, ex- I mean, of course those are just like the, those are the ultimate pop culture movies because people watch them obsessively, but think about how many movies they have to consider every last goddamn detail, because if they don't, they're going to be raked over the coals on Reddit for the next 20 years. Right. The only person from the eighties and seventies and eighties and nineties who really gets that treatment is George Lucas. And why? Because people have watched those damn movies 50, 60, 70, a hundred million times. Yeah. In the meantime, the crazy Rube Goldberg Back to the Future plot works. Uh, Marty winds up back in 1985. We don't realize things are different at all until he arrives at the Lone Pine Mall. Right. Uh, both times he arrives at the mall, first before the experiment, and then when he's racing back to rescue Doc, both times they make a point of having him stop by the sign. 
So you have a chance to read it mm-hmm. first as, you know, Twin Pines Mall and then as Lone Pine Mall. And, you know, it, it's kind of a neat idea that something that simple changes things, but not enough that any, that it makes a difference. Yeah, I'm often reminded of the, things. Yeah. Like I'm often reminded of the sliders episode where it takes them the full episode to realize they haven't come home. And it's only because one of them looks at the Golden Gate Bridge and it's painted blue. <laughs> <laughs> because everything else is exactly as they remember it. So this is the world that is 99.9% their world, but not quite. And it's the same thing here. We get to watch the opening scene of the movie from a different perspective, which I thought was very clever. Yeah, I always uh, enjoy that. That has become a time travel trope. Mm-hmm. Witnessing yourself doing something from earlier in the movie. I can't ever think of it being done before, but it's certainly done many times after. Yeah. And then we see Brown. He survived. He read the letter, all that sort of stuff. He comes home. He notices the house looks very different. The family is very different. Mom and dad are very different. They actually look like human beings. My only, real, my only real question is, how come it took new, confident George McFly 30 goddamn years, almost 40 years, to write his first book? Yeah, I mean, everybody's got one book in them, and his just came out a little bit later. So what's he been doing all this time? Is Clearly, he's not a, an office jockey. Well, he might be a CEO or something like that. I don't know. It's possible. Maybe- He's he's well off and oh, yeah. the, oh yeah. the family's doing well. So I mean, like he's doing something. Well, I mean, the son works Ad- at the bank. advertising executive. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell if you look at the picture of him on the back of the book. Uh, he's got the glasses and he looks like like you say an, ex- an advertising executive. It turns out they had tried numerous looks for New George, and that one didn't work. But they didn't have time when they printed the book cover to take another publicity shot for him. So they grabbed one from the makeup test, and that's what oh, it okay. is. Oh, cool. Uh, but I like that because it, it suggests that, you know, that maybe he's been in this buttoned down executive all this time. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we get to see that uh, Biff is now this loser who does auto part stuff and he's kind of this goofy guy. It's the one Biff I don't believe because I think even if Biff had been humbled in high school, he still would have been a prick. Yeah. Does He'd anyone be... know a bully who stopped being a bully just because one of his victims stood up to him? Mm. Has anyone ever met that bully before? Because I haven't. Can't say as I have. Yeah. But I get it. This is cartoonish. This is meant to be on the head. Look who the alpha male is now. Now it's George. Uh, yeah. That's cute. And then we get to see Marty's car, which is that scary looking truck with the yeah. monster wheels and all that bullshit that they saw way back at the beginning of the film. My question is, how the hell did they park it in there at that angle? Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the showroom angle. Very carefully. And then we see the final scene of the movie, which is the DeLorean coming again and saying, you know, it's your kids and we got to go back to the future. So a couple things to note, first off, those stupid ass glasses that uh, Doc Brown has, mm-hmm. he couldn't see through them. They're sheet metal. Oh, okay. He had to fake it. And the second thing is they had no intention of making a part two. This was really just the end of the story. Huh. Part two and three came later because of pressure from the studio. There was no plan, which is why they had to redo that whole scene at the beginning of Back to the Future 2 with Elizabeth Shue, right? The the love interest from Karate Kid Part 1 mm. as the new girlfriend because they had to remind people of a movie they had seen four years ago. Okay. There was never supposed to be par- Part 2 or Part 3. It was meant to be a one-off, but it was stupid popular. I mean, <laughs> well, $389 million popular. Right. Uh, by the way, uh, Part 2 and Part 3 for a combined budget of $40 million, and they made... Almost $700 million. Wow. What? In 1989-90, $640 million. That is incredible. We learned that the the, uh, the vehicle doesn't use plutonium anymore. Now it uses you know banana peels and beer. Uh, 
it's not even strong beer. It's just shitty American beer. Uh, <laughs> we're going to hear about that. I think it's uh, uh, like biological matter in general, isn't it? Oh, no, because he throws the can in there. Never mind. Yeah. First, he empties it. Then he puts the can in. Right. And then the, then I said, then there's the banana peel and some other garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, fusion comes cheap, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and then off to the future they go. And that's the film. Yeah. Um, so, so after all this, where do you stand on this? Like Heather has going through it changed you at all, or do you still not like it? Uh, it's, it's still iconic. I would still say people should see it. I understand better why I was bored this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I kind of agree with Adam a lot about this one. Boring, good, boring. Huh. Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, <laughs> Okay, Adam, since she agrees with you about everything, do you have anything to add? <laughs> um, I mean, you, you put that really well. Like, it, it is definitely iconic. It's something that I think should be watched. It, it's if for no other reason than to understand where so many other things come from. Yeah. It's it's one of those films. And I, I uh, here I'd probably make the distinction that this is this is a movie. I wouldn't necessarily call it a film. But that's that's my my distinction, my personal distinction that I make. Yeah. I call films art. I call this a popcorn flick that yeah. that's got some smart moments in it. Okay, it it's it's a good enough movie to sit down and watch. And if it's if it's on TV, yeah, what the hell? I'll watch it again in a few years. But this is this is not something that I'm going to sit and obsess over. And I'm going to rant and rave to absolutely everybody that you need to have this in your life. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's an iconic movie of the 80s. And mm-hmm. I think it's, as far as time travel movie goes, it it sets a lot of, um, I won't say it sets the standard, but it, it showed Hollywood how you could do time travel without getting stupid, right? without getting overly complicated or tech nerdy. You know, the only other movie, I, or the only other media I can think of that handles time travel so well is the Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever. It's the one where they go back to the Depression era Chicago, I think. Mm-hmm. Where he's he has to prevent, like he has to stop Edith Keeler from surviving a car accident, otherwise the rise of Hitler and nuclear war. It's it's um it's an excellent episode, and they're very clear. Here's how you have affected the past. Here's how we can stop that. And right. this is the same sort of thing, but it's very bubbly, and it's a it's a film for kids and teens. It's it's a summer flick. If anyone said name me some fun eighties movies, I would, I would absolutely recommend this. I would never say it's glorious, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I get a kick out of it. I don't like it any more, any less than when I saw it all those years ago. It's just there. Right. The best way to put it is like I have a I have a library of six hundred and two or six hundred three DVDs. I don't own this. I've never bothered. Yeah. Mm. I borrowed a copy to listen to the director's cuts. Mm. But yeah, like I said, it's a good film. It's good for what it is. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. You know. Yeah. Hundred uh, percent. Go watch it. Sit down. Waste a waste an hour and a half of your life that you're going to enjoy wasting. I don't think it's a waste. I think it's just a fun film. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's. A, uh, use an hour and a half of your life and have some fun. Yeah. Of course, next time, you know, at some point in a few weeks, we'll do part two and three. We'll do them together just because they were made together and we'll probably be a lot quicker as we go through them. It happens to be two, I think is a better film. Mm -hmm. I love the alternate histories and the alternate futures. Right. I like what they did. This is much more straightforward. They had to make it more complex for the second one, but for a a one-off film, this did a good job. So yeah. So there it is. 